Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all the separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Welcome to Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. This morning, I welcome back Neil James, founder and editor of Blocked magazine from the UK. Neil is my go-to man when it comes to all the ructions in the knitting wars. What unfolds here is a canary into the coal mine on the wider cultural landscape. Neil is witty and entertaining, and I look forward to catching up with him. I then have a brand new guest to introduce you to. Annie Hart is going to be my new lifestyle guru, common sense commentator and all-round woman who knows many things. We start off this morning about discussing that dirty four-letter word, bet. Marty will be back with Media Matters and we'll check in on how things progressing in the political limbo land and what the media have been doing to distract themselves while they wait for the final votes to be counted. And it's time, too, to also catch up on some of your feedback. I've been a little bit tardy on the feedback front, and for that, I apologise. It's just had we've had so much going on. Hi, Marie. Dice speaks to my heart and soul, my memory and my bones. Thank you very much, Jew Maria. You're most, most welcome. Such a wonderful woman to listen to. Thanks so much for bringing her on again, Marie. Cheers, Ian. But not everything is super positive. This woman needs to clean her mouth out. She sounds like a scam. The skank she mentioned earlier, most gutter-speaking person I've ever heard on RCR, not RCR's fault, of course. Look, die is very much a truth bomb, and the language can be very colourful. The one thing that I will say with Di, as she said in the interview, she always judges a person on deeds, not words. And believe me, she has done a lot of great work, particularly in the space for protecting women's rights. Great interview, Marie. I would not have believed this man in female prison business if I'd not heard it with my own ears. Outrageous. What an articulate, brilliant and very wise woman is Di, Mary. And from Nairi, loving your show, Marie. Di Landy is beyond awesome. So much common sense is rare except on RCR. 
Uh, I'll give her a house if I had one in the Carpenter area. All strength to her and the wonderful work she's doing. Blessings from Nighty. Uh, love your show, Maurice. That's from Steve. Thanks, Steve. Oh, here's one for Marty and I. This is from Mark. Marty's quote of the week, making political progress is like cooking bacon. If a pan is too hot, it burns. If it got to build up very slowly, just like New Zealanders' passion levels. Yes, so true. On my interview with Libby Emmons, Carlos said, love Libby. She's my favourite Tim Cast guest. Nick said, two great ladies, thoroughly enjoyed the chat. And on Aotearoa Farm from Heidi, can't wait to hear the barn clean out come next Saturday. Absolutely love these episodes, entertaining and politically on point and nice to ID as a chicken, a masterpiece. Oh, thank you. And that was from Adrian. It's time to catch up to see what's happening down with the animals on Aotearoa Farm. Aotearoa Farm appears to be engulfed in a shroud of gloom. The wait for the final results of the election is creating frustrations for those working in the farmyard and farmhouse. The sheep are facing fallow pastures and less supplementary feed, and worse yet, simply no news to bleat about of note. This has led them to start finding other things to report on, especially now that direct guidance from Chippy and the pigs is not forthcoming. The sheep actually have to do something that they are unaccustomed to. Work. Winnie Ben is always an easy mark, they decided, so they trawled around what the old donkey had been saying in conversation. It appears that Winnie had been telling story about Napoleon's lack of transparency and sharing all news when Winnie sat to her right hand around the farmyard table. Well, this will not do. The sheep adored Napoleon, and even in her departure from the farm, no dark clouds followed her in the ovine's eyes, but alas, this appears not to have stuck as it had hoped. The Bogey Ball World Cup final couldn't come soon enough. This will give the sheep plenty to report on, especially as Squealer had managed to sneak away to the expensive event with the farmhouse checkbook, stretching the overdraft even further and displeasing a great many animals on the farm. The Aotearoa Black Bulls had performed better than expected. After a shaky start, they reached the final against their old foes, the Bull Boers from Africa. As all the animals gathered in the farmhouse crowded around Farmer John's old wireless, the animals went on a journey of frustration, elation and ultimately despair. Oh well, at least the post-mortem of the loss gave the sheep plenty to dissect and chew over. Meanwhile, down in the wallows and the styes with the pigs, there's a ruckus with the free-range pigs. Shawshank has always been the farmhouse-friendly face of the free-range pigs. He's well-turned out, spoke the rarefied language expected of pigs in new elevated statuses, and this skill has propelled the free-range pigs into the affections of many of the farm animals, especially with those in the younger flocks and herds. Shawshank has always been followed around by his sidekick, which many thought was nice enough, abated a little dim. She was a kunikuni sow called Moonbeam, whose interests largely parroted Shawshanks, but recently had become less and less interested in the health of the land and the water and the pastures of the farm, and more interested in who actually owns them. 
She was also well-versed in the politics of envy and fully supported Squealer's rash distribution of feed. In fact, Moonbeam felt that this simply didn't go far enough, especially where Kunikuni were involved. She is also quite fond of championing other causes that encourage centralised control and stripped away individual freedoms. But that's not how she sold it. She took a leaf out of our Napoleon's book and called it kindness and unity. Perhaps our moonbeam has a lust for power that has been unrecognised. Hmm, perhaps Shawshank's bacon is about to be cooked. All of this, of course, left Oinky Lux, the leader-elect, in limbo waiting for the results. Oinky had been quietly going about his business, trying to avoid the sheep and putting his skills to test to build a bridge between Davy Piglet and Winnie Ben. How will Oinky go? Well, listeners, you'll just have to wait until next week to find out their progress here on Aotearoa Farm, exclusively on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Counterculture here with Marie on RCR. And it's time for me to bring back a returning guest all the way back from week two, which feels like a lifetime ago now. And I wanted to get him back because what we discussed is the knitting wars. And I know many of you will be thinking, really, Marie, we're diving into the day job now. What does this have to do with culture? Well, listen to Neil's interview, which is on the app. Go to my counterculture page. It's all the way back at the beginning of March. And it's time to get Neil back because there has been quite a resurgence within the knitting wars. And it will just give you a context, a canary into the coal mine of what is actually going out there in the wider social milieu. So Neil James, editor-in-chief of Blocked Magazine, welcome back. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Oh, it's so good. It's, it's, <laughs> How long is it now? Is it is it six months? It's six months. It doesn't feel that long. It feels I like know. it was only like a couple of weeks ago. I know. So much has happened. So much has happened. So <laughs> much has happened. So what we talked about back then was the history of the knitting wars. And mm. knitting and craft, um, there were several places in the sort of cultural online landscape, knitting and craft being one. Young adult fiction was another. Gaming was another. Where yeah. critical social justice took hold quite early on. It's certainly not gone away. You and I have had our fair, <laughs> fair share of skirmishes in that time, Neil. So yeah, for the listeners, give us a quick overview of you, what it is that you do currently in terms of Blocked and what's been going yeah. on in the world well, of knitting. I produce a, a free knitting and crochet magazine, and I often forget to say it's free. So I'm just saying it's free. It's free to anyone. Anyone can read it. Uh, and we cover a lot of the drama that goes on in the knitting world, as well as knitting patterns and techniques and so on and so forth. And everybody who's part of the magazine is a volunteer. So everything is for free. There's no money to be made from it. I do have a Patreon that um, helps me produce it and just helps me uh, cover the costs of um, the platform where I publish the magazine and so on. Uh, But apart from that, it's all free. And I kind of try to keep um, an eye on what's going on because obviously it's good for the magazine because it gives me material to write about, but it's incredible the stuff that happens and it... If I was an outsider, I don't think I would necessarily believe some of the crazy things that have happened over the last few years. And I think that the knitting world is a little bit like um, we're almost under like a bell jar 
And we, like you say, with the gamers as well and the young fiction and so on, there's like certain areas where you could, if you could study them, you will know what's going to happen in the wider culture maybe a year later. So, so this is, is a warning, a warning from the future for everyone listening. It is a, it is a bellwether. It is. I have found mm. that hand knitting is a bellwether, and you're right. There is. I I really do believe that when we get through all this wokuha, that they will study what has yes. gone on, oh, pat- yes. particularly yeah. in our industry, because it is just completely crazy. So, for listeners, that's how I ended up here. Is I got yes, caught it is, up. Isn't it? It, yeah, and this is the funny thing when it comes to you were one of the original ones. I know, you? I know. I was in that first sort of pass. I've been at this a while. But when it's amazing when someone shits on your shoe, or you stand in um, unexpectedly stand in poop, you sort of all of a sudden go, "Oh, what's going on?" And I was like that. I was blithely doing what I do for years and years and years and years, living on common sense, and then these sorts of things blow up. So give us an example just quickly before we dive into what's happening right now of some of the things in the early days that would get uh, people into trouble. Oh, lots of things. Um, One of them was being a conservative, and especially if you were American and you supported Donald Trump, or if you were a Brit and you supported Brexit. So that was like kind of some of the earlier things. There were things before that as well. There was a lady, um, oh, I, for- I always forget her name. Karen Templer. Yes, that's the one. Yeah, she wrote the article, didn't she? A blog post, sorry, where she was planning on going to India. And because she said how exotic this was and how alien it was for her, you know, being from America and so on, they jumped on the whole thing that it was a racist sort of commentary that she was making. Um, Then we had Nathan, who, uh, I mean, that was the one that really got me first Mm -hmm. into all this, really, where he um, wrote a poem about diversity and they took offence to it because he was a white man and he was man explaining and tone policing and there's a there's a core group of um oh what do you call them like the they're gender critical people they're race activists they're um all of the woke things and they are constantly looking mm. for a transgression anywhere. a friend a friend of mine calls them the woke depusses <laughs> <laughs> The woke to pusses because they they all started wearing those silly pussy hats and and uh, yeah so yeah, he calls them the woke yeah. to pusses and yeah, and so the Nathan that we referred to I mean this is a man I mean whilst he is a Caucasian man he's also a gay Caucasian mm. male knitter and his crime really to be honest was to get gather a lot of success I think very very quickly and there was a certain element yeah. of jealousy there. Well, there's a there's definitely a, an anti-male sentiment in the knitting world, and I'm not talking about everyone in the knitting world. I'm talking about these, you know, uh, the woke people. And one of the things that they always say is they call men who sort of rise to the top in the knitting world. They just say they're mediocre men. So they're trying to say that there are women who are more talented, who work harder, but they never get to the top. Whereas you have these mediocre men that come along and then suddenly they're at the top. And included in that is Nathan Taylor, um, Stephen West, who we'll talk about shortly as well. But the thing about these particular men, about Nathan and Stephen West, they're exceptional. They're not mediocre. They are exceptional 
in what they do. They're exceptional designers. Uh, Nathan's actually in both of their cases, they're they're performers as well. You know, they're natural on camera. They're natural talking. They can both write. They can both, you know, they uh, one of them's a dancer, one of them's an actor. You know, and they're also brilliant designers. And the the things that they design go beyond your average designer's mm. ability. You know, they they they're innovative. They do things that are new. So there's no way that they could be called mediocre. So you're right when you say that there's jealousy involved. But I I just don't get it because I, I want people like those people to be celebrated for their skill and for their talent. You know, I want to enjoy what they're going to produce for knitters and crocheters and so on. So Stephen West, you mentioned Stephen just in that group. And you're right, yeah. because in terms of their skill, Stephen has the ability to take an idea or a concept and build a story of patterns around that. Yeah. Nathan, he is the king of knit nerds. He <laughs> loves the technical, whole... Technical, isn't it? It's he's the, very the technical. Yeah. I mean, he's, you know, so just to give you an idea, listeners, he has pioneered a, uh, there's a double-facing technique called brioche knitting. And it's it's very, very, it's not super difficult, but it's something that is beyond beginners or even you sort of start attempting it as an intermediate knitter. He's not only taken that technique and amplified it, he's now gone and created it in multi-colours, multi-strands, in designs and shapes and directions that no one else has done and recently published in June a 400-page tome of oh, patterns, techniques, and videos. I mean, this yeah. to say that he is mediocre is really and is ridiculous yeah he he's outstanding there's no doubt about that and um <clears throat> so any man basically is is a target and there's also um a guy called uh james oh mcintosh no oh well there's yeah there's james mcintosh as well they they went for him as well because he um he's a dyer as well isn't he? he's a yarn mm. dyer but there's a designer, he's a violinist, and he now lives in somewhere like Serbia or Croatia. And I can't remember his last name. And he designs, and he's a little bit out there. And they tend to call him the bargain bucket Stephen West. That's how they put him down. But the thing is, he's never done any harm to anybody. You know, he's never spoken out about anything. Yet, for some reason, they have a problem with him designing. And they ha also have a problem with him going to Croatia to learn Croatian. And it's like, it, when they get something in their head that they don't like someone, you know, it doesn't matter what that person does. Everything they do then becomes a problem in their eyes. Because it, it's like, why would learning Serbian or Croatian or wh whatever it is, why is that a problem, you know? It's just because he's a man, basically. Mm, mm. Um, so, so then Stephen West, he's been interesting yeah. because he is—he's young. I mean, he's only what thirty-four, I think, isn't he? He's not. I think thirty-four this week, isn't he? Yeah, isn't it? yeah. Because yeah, he's doing his every birthday. He does a, a percentage sale off his uh, patterns, and it's thirty-four percent this year. So he's thirty-four. Yeah, so he's thirty-four, and he's so yeah, and he's been at the top of his game now. I mean, I, I mean, gosh, he's been around for more than a decade. As you said, he's a former dancer, based in Amsterdam from Oklahoma. So he's an un yeah, he's, he's an unlikely lad. Story, he's, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, he's very tall, <laughs> and he has sort of been at the forefront of design, and particularly what I call modern contemporary knit design. Now, he does a thing every October, which is incredibly popular. I've done it a few times. It's called the Mystery Knit Along, and it is where they produce clues 
uh, each week and you knit a shawl. And everybody was excited this year like they had been in previous years. But then what happened, Neil? Well, the thing, I think what's really important to say about what we call the MCAL, the make-along, isn't it, or the, the, the knit-along, is that it was one of the only things in the knitting world that actually brings everybody together. And there's very little infighting. Usually, you know, the people who have been cancelled by the mob still do the MCAL. Um, the people that cancelled people in the mob do the MCAL. The the people who don't get involved do it. And everybody kind of, they it's something that everyone in October looks forward to generally i've never taken part in the mcal but i actually like to watch it i like to see what's going on it's really interesting because the thing about what he designs is without being rude to him some of the things he designs i would say were hideous other things that he designs i think are absolutely fantastic but whichever it is whether it's hideous or fantastic they're always clever and they're all and as a knitter you are going to learn a technique, at least one technique in every shawl he designs. So he released uh, his first clue of this uh, mystery uh, knit along, and it was um, called the Geo Gradients, I think it was called. And what he does is he doesn't tell you what you need to do for the pattern that he's created. He'll give you clues, but he'll also give you an idea of what kind of yarns to buy. And many people will spend a lot of money on this yarn you know on average they'll be paying 80 to 100 dollars us dollars for the four three four yarns that they're going to use and they'll often use their best yarns they don't often use you know the the um the stash yarn that's been there for five years gathering dust so you know it's very highly thought of so the first clue was released and everyone was really excited. And obviously, there's always the uh, the couple of knitters who are super fast and were able to spend all day knitting that first clue, so managed to finish it by the end of that day. And then they shared it with, with a spoiler alert, so people who didn't know what the clue was going to be yet um, wouldn't see it. And it was shared on a website called Ravelry, which is very popular and uh there's a lot of forums on there and people go on there and and uh Stephen west has his own forums on there where they talk about his patterns and so on and everything was fine everyone was saying how much they loved this pattern it's a geometric geometric pattern and uh, then i think it was the 35th and 36th comment of the day so this is how early it was in the process somebody said that the design resembled a swastika and then things kind of snowballed from there and it was it was bizarre it was because the thing is i i have to emphasize the design is not a swastika no the design is more what you would call a pinwheel and anyone who's a quilter or sewer you're going to know immediately what i mean when i say a pinwheel mm. um it's an ancient symbol that goes back you know the ancient celts used it and i think aborigines may have used it i don't know it go so many cultures have used this pinwheel symbol when because um, I, think... I miss the whole swastika thing because i i don't i'm not oh. tapped in well yeah i'm not tapped right. in but you know a, a mutual friend that we both have is and he sent me a, an image of his first clue and said to yeah. me what do you think this looks like and i looked at it and straight away, I thought, "Oh, that's clever! Um, it looks like a wind. It looks like a windmill. A windmill yeah. He yeah. he lives in Amsterdam. He's gone and done a Dutch windmill. Yeah. yeah, that's really clever. Oh, well done, Stephen. 
Oh, so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you, do, you don't realise what this means about you now, though. Because you mm. don't see the swastika, you are now a Nazi. This is the... This is the oh, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but we'll, we'll <laughs> rewind slightly. So these two people, and from what I can gather, I can't say for certain, but I don't believe that either of the two people that saw the swastika were even knitting it. They were just in the comments to see what the clue was going to look like. Um, and then a big discussion started about whether people saw a, a swastika or not. And then people were starting to get a bit nervous about knitting it and a bit nervous about showing it. And people, at this stage, people were still willing to try and make it you know, so that it was okay. I mean, I still think it's okay, whatever, because to me, it is not a swastika. But people were re-jigging their colours so that certain colours were more dominant than others, so that the emphasis of the design was slightly different. Uh, one person even um, created a black and white uh, design so you could colour it in yourself so that you would know exactly how your pattern was going to appear at the end of it all. And initially, I just thought, oh, poor Stephen. I, I actually defended him at the beginning. I, I wrote a few Instagram posts defending him because I just thought, oh, here we go again. You know, there's always somebody who wants to try and destroy some a bit of fun. That, so, you know, because it is fun. The, the knit along is a fun thing. And I was really, um, want, I really wanted to back him up because I thought, no, this is awful. What they're doing to him is wrong. And I had, an, I had visions of him being cancelled over this, you know, and that they were going to say, you know, you've designed a, you know, a, a swastika and so on. So what he did, he responded very, very quickly. And he, um, was aghast, I would say, you know, that people thought there was a swastika in his, in his design. And he's a, I think he's a nice guy. You know, he's not, he's certainly not someone that would have deliberately put a swastika in his design. You know, he just wouldn't have done that. Um, so what, <clears throat> what he did was he acknowledged that people could see this swastika. You know, he, he didn't dismiss them, but then he released a, an alternative version and he did it very quickly. So, kudos to him for doing that but it was a very boring alternative and it was just concentric squares i think it was which as a knitter is very you know if you're a reasonably experienced knitter that is not you're not going to learn anything by doing concentric squares whereas the design that everyone was saying was a swastika well not everyone was saying but some were saying was actually quite complex there was a lot to it and it wasn't as simple so you were learning something so he produce this alternative version and i thought that that would hopefully be the end of it then you know okay so mm. if you see a swastika you don't have to knit the swastika you can now knit this other version but then what started to happen was and it didn't happen straight away it kind of crept in there were people who really took this swastika idea and ran with it so on the reddit site there was a craft snarker who has been really keeping the fuel going on this you know has really has some kind of vested interest in making sure everyone knows that this was a swastika and what started to happen was and this is where my my empathy with Stephen West kind of went completely. I now have no sympathy for him whatsoever because he then started to take, he took all of the references to the first clue away. So nobody then could get clue one as a 
on a piece of paper, you know, or on email or whatever. So if you wanted to knit clue one, which is what everyone said was the swastika, you no longer could get it unless you'd already downloaded it. And then to make matters worse, what he always does with his uh, MCALs, which is really good, is he does videos that go along it, alongside it. So um, you can read the pattern, and it can be quite complex, some of his patterns, but then there's a video to show you how to do that. And what he did was he took that video down. And he so he knew that people would now struggle, that were wanting to carry on with the original design. And the way it was handled was really bad because he basically said that um you know he didn't want to dismiss these people that were harmed by seeing a swastika so i have issues with that straight away because nobody's harmed by seeing a swastika you know we've had indiana jones we've had captain america we've had wonder woman all these kids shows and films all have swastikas in them because they're all set in germany in world war ii mostly um you know seeing a swastika in and of itself does not harm anyone you might not like it and it might bother you but it doesn't harm you and the people that were claiming harm none of them were people that you would think could be harmed by seeing a swastika so for example um you know the jewish people or people whose family were in the holocaust they were saying this is not a swastika you know people who know what a swastika is for whatever reason they need to know what a swastika is knew it wasn't you know and it was silly it was i mean to put this into context um i looked on oh i forget what the organization is called i think it's called the A apb i think it is and it's a an organization where you can find out what hate symbols are out there in culture at the moment. And one of the biggest is just the number 18. So if you celebrate a family member's 18th birthday and send them a card with 18 on it, somebody somewhere could accuse you of being a Nazi because that is a Nazi symbol. Now, you you know, the ridiculous lengths that we could go to by finding these Nazi symbols everywhere, you know, everything could be, you know, and the thing with the swastika is it's just a cross with feet, you know, that, and it's a, and in and again, in and of itself, it isn't a Nazi symbol. It's actually an ancient symbol that goes back in Hindu um, culture. Uh, it even is in Jewish culture going way back thousands of years. And it's just that this one particular moment of time it was used in a horrific way but we shouldn't forget that and by erasing the swastika from all mention and from all hint you know because it wasn't even a swastika you know we're kind of erasing what those people did when they did use it for such a terrible thing but I, oh sorry i'm got really going off on it going back to stephen west <clears throat> so what he'd done is he'd um set the scene for people to then start accusing other knitters so two camps emerged and funnily enough the minority camp is the one that kept seeing the swastika everywhere the majority of people didn't and they wanted to carry on doing the original design but the 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 mood shifted and it became quite nasty and then you had people saying things like um if you knit clue one it's obvious that you've just always wanted to wear a swastika and this is your moment. And, Why am I not surprised? <laughs> I mean, I can't believe I'm even saying the words because it was, you know, it's so shocking. And now what has happened is that, and this is where my issue with Stephen West comes, my real issue with Stephen West, is that 
he hasn't defended the people that want to just knit the pinwheel, mm. which is but what then that's is. that's the that's the fear, isn't it? You know, because he is a yeah. very gentle soul, and not everybody has got you know rhino hide like you and I. <laughs> uh, True, I yeah, I have to take that on board. I get yeah, that. And yeah, he, but he did it, do yeah, a video didn't he where he cried and he was mm. really upset about and it. And what, of I, course, is the number one rule for the mob, Neil? The number never one apologize. Wrong. Never, never apologize. Never apologize. Uh, never. Yeah, by apologizing, you open yourself up to all sorts of criticism because then people start analyzing the words you use in your apology. Now, I actually sent him an email but I because um, I wanted to support him, but I did say to him, look, you know, I've got some advice for you. Not that, you know, he's, you know, Stephen West, you know, huge designer. Um, and my advice was, look, you know, you shouldn't have apologized. What you should say is, I, you know, I see the people that are saying that, that you see a swastika. I, I'm not dismissing that, but I'm also not dismissing the people that don't see it. You do you, you know, do mm. knit what you want to knit. Because the other aspect of this is that now there was going to be um, pictures were going to be shown on, on, I don't know that it was going to be on his website, but certainly in the forums that he's in. And there was a competition as well. And now anybody who knits clue one, is banned from that you're not allowed to show clue one and if you do you have to blur out the image of the pinwheel goodness and there's another aspect to this which um which i hadn't thought of at the time but somebody else mentioned in a forum that i'm in and one of the things that was happening was people were suggesting new ways of doing this clue one which is great that they were doing that but then it's like well yeah but whose pattern is this now whose pattern have i bought because i've spent eight dollars on this pattern i wanted a stephen west design but now i've got martha from down the roads design you know who's done a granny square or she's done you know whatever in the middle and that is now the official pattern you know it's like what am i going to learn from mm. that and why and and then all the uh, there were some big names who sort of got involved in this so um there's a lady called uh carlin borisenko who's quite prominent in the knitting world for all sorts of different reasons. And I'm not going to get into it. And she, I do know she is a huge fan of Stephen West. She is. She is. There's no denying that she does all of his MCALs and she's all, she always supports him. And she did a, a video where she was absolutely fuming about what he'd done. And I have to say, I don't agree with Carleen on very many things, but on this particular issue, I did agree with what she was saying. Maybe not with what she has sort of threatened, because I'll come to that in a second as well. I don't agree with that. But um, that she sort of articulated the feeling that many of us felt that we were being completely dismissed and were being labelled as Nazis just because we want to knit his design. You know, because at the end of the day, it's his design. Um, but then what uh, she did was she had managed to download the video that he'd deleted and she then reposted it on her youtube and on her rumble and all the other versions of that that there are and uh, i think he hit her with a copyright strike or somebody did and it was taken down off youtube and i think i don't know whether it's still on rumble or not um but then she said that she was going to get revenge and this is where mm. you know i lose support for her on this issue because it's like no there's no need for revenge on this you know it's not like somebody's murdered your grandmother or anything you know what no. i mean it's not that serious it's a shawl at the end of the day um, but what she's intending to do is um, to basically breach his copyright and republish pretty much every 
pattern that she's bought of his and just change it slightly so she's going to make the money, I'm assuming, from it. I don't know why she would do this, um, but she did describe it as a revenge move. Mm. So, Believe me, I, I would know why she would do that, but we're not going to uh, split that here right now. Uh, you know, and look, for listeners out there who are hearing all of this going, I never knew what? knitters were so insane. <laughs> or you might be thinking, I always knew those knitters were crazy. This is a barometer. This is why I have Neil on. Even if you are not a hand knitter, these sorts of actions and things happen. You may be listening to this and you were thinking, gosh, that happened down at the, the bridge club or the community event. These sorts of personalities crop up all the time. And hand knitting, it has been endemic now for, oh gosh, it must be coming up seven or eight years this has been going on. And they're still oh, least, at it. And we actually had a little bit of a hiatus because when you and I spoke six months ago, it was on the back of Kirsty Glass, who was one of the um, yes. prominent American influ knit influences. And She's actually, I think, come out the other side better, stronger, greater, and she and, has. and yeah, she she's has. she's fantastic. And it, it, there's been a bit of a lull, but this is just it. They can't stay quiet for long, and well, it's been amazing been few... that Stephen hasn't. He's been someone I'm amazed that's been left untarnished for as long as he has. Well, there's an interesting thing about Stephen because there, I mean, there have been a few minor skirmishes, a few little things. And like I was saying before about um, the hatred of men in the knitting world uh, by these people, I'm not talking about all knitters. Um, they've tried to get Stephen West a few times. They often try to bring him down for silly reasons. And he's somehow managed to escape, you know, this up until now. But the irony now is that the people that were supporting him to try and defend him have kind of turned the back on him now because he we feel that he's turned his back on us. So the people who are defending him now are the same people that three, four, five months ago were trying to bring him down over something else. You know, it's so it's so fickle. The knitting mm. world is so fickle as well. And there's definitely a feeling of um, you know, cannibalism, you know, virtual cannibalism that they're trying to eat their own. And if anybody steps out of line, you know, they are immediately pounced on and and then the the apology comes and then that isn't good enough. Um you know, they always do it wrong in some way. And we'll probably end up talking about another case a little bit later on of uh, somebody who's got their apology wrong. And um, so my advice to anybody out there, if you're ever accused of any of these sort of silly things, please don't apologize. Um, I'm not saying that you shouldn't apologize. If you've done something wrong, you know, like seriously wrong, then maybe you do need to apologize. But if it's a made up thing that you know you haven't done anything wrong, don't apologize because then they've got you. They've got you where they want you and they don't accept apologies. They never do. Because accepting with any of these cultural warriors, by accepting an apology or by issuing an apology, what you're doing is you're accepting to play by their rules. Yeah, it's a bit like you've signed that contract, isn't yeah. it? It's almost, you know, like you've, you've agreed to be part of this now. Yeah, because all you've got to do is look at all of the cases. But even in the wider, you know, the wider world, you know, this is happening uh, in the UK now. We've got uh, Lawrence Fox. He, whether it's right or wrong what he did, he apologised and he shouldn't have done uh, because that's, you know, he's now owned by them, really. You've got people like, um, who else has been um, 
Oh, you, well, you talked to uh, Katie Hopkins, didn't you? I mean, mm. she she's a great example of somebody who doesn't apologise, you know. And I I've got a lot of respect for Katie Hopkins because she she stands up, you know. She and she's unwavering, and that makes people a little bit afraid of people like Katie Hopkins, I think, because they can't control them by mm. you know. I think that that's how I've managed to get through all of this as well. Is that I don't. I just don't fall for the nonsense and I'll say what I want to say, whether they like it or not. And they'll criticize me for it. And I'll just say it again. <laughs> you know, and it, I think it really does annoy them more than anything because I will not accept what they're saying to us, you know. Oh, I mean, Neil is with the magazine listeners. Neil is somebody that likes to sit across the para, top of the parapet uh, with his <laughs> air rifle, sort of snapping out <laughs> remarks uh, generally on Instagram. Whereas I sort of, I, <laughs> definitely fall into the I just cannot be bothered <laughs> I'm, you know I'm so I'm so busy with everything else going on that um it, and it's really interesting though we, we were saying before we got started it's really interesting with this new job I mean it was always very nerve-wracking for me to take this role on I mean I'd had multiple skirmishes with them over a period of yeah. two or three years and then I really had they crossed a line with me big time, so I put my hand up in March of oh yeah Ma uh, yeah March of 2020 it was at the end of the first lockdown, and I just had had enough, and so I appeared on a, uh, a pretty well known uh, podcast in the United States with mutual friends, and and just sort of said I'm over it, you know I'm just I've had enough, and this is what they'd uh, done to the business that I managed, and by doing that, well you can imagine the implosion that happened in this country and at the time I'll be honest with you at the time it was not pleasant would I want to do it again no no because <laughs> it's not a pleasant thing you feel like digitally a thousand voices are screaming at you at any given time and the thing that they do that I think is really the worst part of it all is that they they go around telling everyone who follows you or who you know, you've got to stop following this person because mm. this person is evil or this person is this. And they'll even do it to your family members if they're on there. Yeah. You know, they they want to just they don't just want to stop you doing whatever it is that you did that offended them in the first place. They want they want you destroyed. Yeah, they do. They it's want the you to have no income, no friends, yeah. no family. They yeah. they would get you homeless if they could. Yeah. And it's for what? Awful. It, it's crazy. Yeah. It and this is the thing that I see with Stephen. This is where I have a wee bit more sympathy mm. with him, is that he's in a, a business situation where he's not the only person in that business. So I do know that he does, has business partners. So, you know, obviously you've got to work collaboratively. I am so lucky that my business partners are amazing. So when all of this went down, you know, they were fully aware of, of everything and just super supportive. And, you know, we worked on it together as a as a combined problem or issue whereas it, it what does happen though is that you in this industry in the the day job industry is that you go to these events and shows and we're going to talk about one of those in a minute because that's <laughs> i'm just oh. still i'm laughing to the point that i'm crying over that oh so good yeah uh, get your anywho, coffee ready for this one <laughs> i know uh but you, you so a lot of your event is around going to these shows where Sometimes hundreds, thousands, or tens of thousands of people attend. Like, and I've been to one of these big ones in the US. And so you a sell a lot of product. It's about 
uh, getting your name out there. It's the public appearances, all of those sorts of things, which are integral to your brand. And what they're doing with poor Stephen is they are literally not trying to only destroy the man, but they're trying to destroy the brand. We- where I would say though, where I would say there's something slightly different, and I am not justifying any of what's happened to Stephen, but there's a slight difference in the the what I've noticed is that the woke people, the lefties, they will say, right, I'm never buying from them again, and neither are you. You know, you mustn't mm. buy from them either. And if you do, we're going to make sure everybody knows that you're as bad as they are. Whereas what seems to be happening this time around with Stephen is people who were really upset about this, the ones that, you know, knitted the swastika in inverted commas, they're saying, well, I'm not going to take part in his MCAL again. But they're not saying to anybody else not to. So mm. it's kind of different. It's, there's a similarity there that has that I do find a bit uncomfortable, but I kind of see why people are saying that. But I also think that that is going to blow over for Stephen West because I think he is an exceptional designer and mm. i think he'll weather this out and i think he'll be fine in the end um, and yeah. i think he, he'll just probably lose a few sales i don't think he's going to be you know, no that he's not going to get uninvited from events and i think no, that that's no. you know he's gone and done that so we alluded to uh so that, that so that happened and when you and i first initially went to hook up to have this catch up that's what we were going to talk about and then in the meantime <laughs> meanwhile, yeah. meanwhile in New York, uh, uh, they so there is a show in an event in upstate New York, which it's like the holy grail to knitters. Um, yeah. I'm one, I've got a friend like who's just got on. Oh, I could. I'm so jealous. She's from New Zealand. I could come with friends here from New Zealand that have just um, just been. So tell us about that event and what sort of transpired there, because again. It, this I know I'm talking about knitting, but this could be any sort of event that's held. The fact that it's a knitting Absolutely. event is, um, you know, I do need to sort of preface this by saying everything I'm going to say is alleged, allegedly, because it's all unfolding now. Even as we're talking, there's new things coming out. So, and a lot of it is anecdotal. So, when I'm just going to be sort of re-saying what I've read or heard rather than knowing some of these things as absolute fact. I think I need to say that because also, um, just as a precursor to this, I had a lawyer contact me today to ask me if I knew if any of the participants of what we're going to talk about wanted to sue and if I would know who they were. And it's like, oh, right, this so this is getting serious now. You know, this isn't a game anymore, you know. But Anyway, so what happens? There's there's a couple of events. There's the um, what's known as the Rhinebeck event, isn't there? Which is the huge one. Which I uh, forget what the is it the the sheep and it is uh, the the, the upstate New York wool and sheep festival. Sheep yeah, and wool but festival. everyone knows it is Rhinebeck. Rhinebeck, yeah. Um, now the thing about Rhinebeck is that's been going for years. It's huge. It's probably the biggest one in the world, I think, um, if I'm not mistaken. And there's been a lot of complaints over the years that they kind of keep the same vendors and that people literally have to die before a new vendor can take their place. So there's been a couple of people who've been a little bit unhappy about that. So they've created smaller events that kind of satellite around Rhinebeck and um, they're not really part of Rhinebeck, but everyone's kind of just taken them on board. So one, this one in particular is called Woolen Folk, which has only been going for three years, I think it is. I think it started straight after uh, lockdowns. And the lady that's, uh, that launched this, she used to have a yarn shop. So just to set the scene, 
um she we think the yarn shop was a failing business so she did a fundraiser to raise money for the to keep the shop going so i don't know how much she raised but then what people are saying is that the moment she got the money she just closed the shop and presumably kept the money allegedly i need to keep stressing this allegedly so this is the person who um then went off to create this event called woolen folk and i believe she had a couple of partners that were involved as well and uh, so it was a smaller version of the rhinebeck um yarn show and she had a f uh, you know quite a few um loyal followers of people that went there each year and then this year something kind of happened initially five weeks before the event so everything had already been booked but then they had to change the venue and the official line that's coming out but there's lots of people who are arguing that this can't be the case but it turns out that there may have been a wedding pre-booked so they had to move the venue so they moved to um i believe it's uh somewhere in catskill I think so not the so it's in the Catskills in New York State but it's actually the town of Catskill I think it is and it was a different venue that they hadn't used before it had two buildings and an outside area as well so they moved this and they did let everybody know because they did a an Instagram live where they talked about this that people were going to be there and they they sold it as if it was going to be better because there was going to be an inside space so I'm not sure whether the original venue was all outside or not but that's by the by so anyway so they booked this new place and uh, people were buying their tickets and i believe the tickets were about 45 50 if you bought them in advance but then on the day if you just turned up they were going as as high as 65 dollars for us and it's just to walk in the door to go shopping yeah you don't get anything for that you just yeah you just get yeah. in the door um the vendors were paying i believe from about 900 dollars upwards for their their table space so some of them were doing like a double space which meant they were paying eighteen hundred dollars and from what we can gather from one or two of the sponsors they were paying two and a half thousand dollars each to be a sponsor which meant that their their logos were everywhere you know so everyone would see that so the the firm woolen folk must have made before any outgoings because obviously there'll be a lot of outgoings they must have been making about two hundred thousand plus on that day and so the venue allegedly holds 500 people but they sold i think it was between two and a half thousand and three thousand tickets and they didn't stagger those tickets so people would have just turned up all at once and there wasn't enough room so there's a lot of so many issues revolving around this that i'm going to miss some out but i'll start with the the customer experience first so what was happening for customers was the space was too small to move around there's been lots of talk of people who were in um uh mobility no i don't think it was wheelchairs I, you know i think they're called scooters aren't they where one lady apparently fell out of the scooter and had to be helped because she was turning around a corner and it wasn't wide enough um there were the toilets weren't very well um uh 
displayed or whatever. Uh, people couldn't find any of the vendors because they were all over the place. And there was no plan of where anyone was. So you turned up, you didn't know where your the vendor you wanted to buy from would be. So there were people on the fifth floor that nobody actually even went to. You know, they I don't think they sold very many products at all. There was just one lift as well. No signs anywhere, apparently. Um, so, and one uh, one person fell and broke their collarbone, apparently, because of how badly things were laid out. And but, I understand there was a thunderstorm too in the middle of all of this that then created massive issues in terms of mobility and mud and yeah, and and also electric problems because there was electric uh, wires everywhere, but. The, from the vendor's point of view, the night before, on the Wednesday, there was a, a dinner that was $250 per... Oh, hang on, no. was It, it was either $160 or $250. I'm, I might be mixing that up. And apparently it was nice, but it wasn't great, and there was uh, some people didn't get the full food that they paid for. Uh, but everyone was sat back to back, literally couldn't move. And apparently um, a larger lady actually went to the organiser and said, look, you know, I can't sit here, you know. And the the organiser apparently just turned around and snapped at her and just said, well, that's your problem. You know, so straight away there was like this sort of, oh, you know, this disdain for the customers and the vendors. Um, now, on that night, uh, on the Wednesday night, I think it was, she the um the organizer allowed some of the very big names to set up their stalls early so the big names i don't know whether you want me to mention the big names or not uh would you rather i didn't or does it matter? oh i don't mind yeah so there was um magpie fibers they're a very big name there was lamb and kid there were also Le Garçon, which are uh, um, two guys from Canada. They've also been in knitting war events in mm. the past. Um, and Lola Bean Yarn, Adela of Lola Bean Yarn, she was oh, there. Oh, your girlfriend, Neil. Ah, yes, my favourite. Yes, she was there. And uh, she wasn't vending there, but Magpie Fibres were selling her yarn there. And she was going to be there as some kind of a famous podcaster meet and greet type of thing, I think. And they were the ones that people were complaining were being pandered to a little bit. The The event organiser spent the entire time with those, you know, three or four people and didn't give anybody else any help of any kind, apparently. Now, the uh, everybody else had to sort of find their own place to set up. And some of the stories have been crazy there was one particular um i think uh oh their um they their name begins with an e and i've forgotten now uh i've forgotten the name i'm sorry but they all of their packaging went missing first of all so all of their yarn in their boxes they couldn't find where they were then it had arrived before they had got there so they contacted the organizers and they said oh we'll keep it all safe in this particular place when they actually turned up because of the weather other vendors and um, people there, the organisers, had used their boxes of yarn as like channels for the water to run down and for people to walk on. And so a lot of their yarn was ruined. And the, this is expensive stuff. You know, if you're not a knitter, the ones who don't, you know, we're talking each yarn, each ball of yarn is going to be $20, $30, isn't it? You know, we're not talking fiver, you know. Um, 
so they they were really upset that that had happened there were other issues that had happened with them as well where they were treated really badly um and um there were other people who um were asking for tarpaulin and coverings you know so that things couldn't get wet and um the initially the organizer had said oh yeah i'll go and get that so then this vendor must have been telling everybody else in the area oh yeah she's gone to get them and when she came back someone said well where's this tarpaulin and she actually said no she lied there isn't any i never said there was any so people were having to then go and buy their own so one of the vendors went out and bought their own tarpaulin to cover the yarn because the yarn was just getting destroyed in the mud and people because it was so badly organized that people were walking around knocking yarn off the tables onto the mud on the floor um so things nobody's going to buy that then you know that's you know that's a waste of it's a lost sale yeah yeah and the other thing is they all were promised to have electric for lighting and for their you know neon logos and so on but that electric if it was there at all was like an extension cable running through the water you know it was extremely dangerous there was a um I couldn't tell what it was by the description, but there was some kind of um, obstacle that was sharp and high. And if somebody had tripped, it would have basically impaled them. And it was brought to the attention of the organiser. And the organiser said, well, they can see, they can walk around it. And, you know, and oh, and when the person who fell and broke their um, collarbone, the organiser apparently just stood and just watched and then just walked away. And the rest of the time, this person just disappeared. Nobody knew where she was. And when anybody did see her, she was literally just with her favourites, which is Lola Bean and Legarson. And Gosh, this is a lawsuit waiting to happen, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, there are so many things that have happened that I can't even remember them all because they're all coming out. And the, I mean, you've got the, um, you've got some people who are playing weird games on the internet now. There's a, a lady who, um, keeps saying, Oh, you don't know half of what went on. If I told you, you, you know, the, and it's like, well, tell people, you know, don't just tease them, tell them, you know, there was a lady who, um, had flown all the way over there from Glasgow, I think. Um, and uh, I don't think I, I don't think she even made a single sale because of where she was. Nobody knew she was there. Um, now, I don't know how much of this is down to people not reading contracts, uh, how much of it is down to the individual who was organizing this. But rumor is that the people that worked with her the previous year would not work with her this year so it, it, i think what people are saying again i have to stress i don't know if this is true that she did so little last year as in didn't do any of the organizing that the other people wouldn't do it this year and she was left on her own to deal with it and this is why it was so bad but she she made the mistake uh now this is this is a good example actually of where an, an apology is probably warranted but you need to do it very carefully so she did issue an apology but she did it in a rush. It was the worst spelling and grammar you have ever seen, ever. And it was very half-hearted. And obviously, they pulled it to pieces and, you know, found every problem with it that they could. Now, the part of it where it gets sort of sticky in a way is that she's a person of colour. So a lot of the people who are complaining 
are having to tiptoe around this because they're scared of being accused of being racist because there's definitely a feeling in the knitting world that black women especially are beyond reproach and you you know if you criticize a black woman for doing something wrong you're actually being racist i know how ridiculous that sounds but that is the sort of the general feeling and um so the lady, she is a, a, a woman of colour, and her best friend is Adela, who's also a woman of colour, who's from Lola Bignan. And when all this happened, there were, the big names sort of stayed very quiet and didn't say anything. And then this is where I kind of first noticed it, because there were vendors who started to complain about things that had gone wrong. But then there were other people saying, oh, I had a great time, you know, and perhaps they did, you know, some people did. But then people were then saying to them, how dare you come on here with your toxic positivity? So basically, if you're too positive, it's toxic. Um, oh, there was even a, a woman who said that um, she was absolutely appalled and frightened because traumatized sorry she said she was traumatized because of all the happy smiling faces that she saw because nobody was wearing a mask and it's like imagine being traumatized by happy smiling faces you know how 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 messed up must you be to be like that um so the way it kind of is at the moment is that all the stories are coming in one after the other after the other and the, the one of the, the funny things for me is that Adela of Lola Bean Yarn always manages to be in the middle of these dramas somehow. I don't know how it happens, but she does always end up there. And she's very um she's very vocal and she kind of appears to dictate the general mood of how things go and who should be cancelled and who shouldn't be cancelled, for example. And because this person was her friend, people have been questioning Adela, you know, what? why didn't you see anything? Why didn't you say anything? You know, knowing that the whole time they were there, Adela spent most of that time with the organiser. I think these are valid questions. But now what's happening is there's a, a, a group of them now sort of surrounding Adela um, who incidentally is now saying, literally saying that it was worse for her because her logo wasn't shown. She paid $2,500 and they didn't even show her logo. And they had the audacity to ask her to do a, a chat thing for free, you know, uh, like a where people meet and greet. Yeah. yeah, meet and greet. Yeah. And um, so she's kind of making herself the victim. And people are sort of surrounded her saying, how dare people question Adela? This is this is racist to, you know, they're not asking any of the white vendors who are there. But the reason is the white vendors aren't her friend. You know, this is a personal friend of Adela's. So it's like, I get why people are asking her these questions. Because if she witnessed all these things, which she claims she did, why did she not say anything at the time? And why is it now she's only talking about it? Mm -hmm. so meanwhile, that, sorry, oh, sorry, meanwhile what I love is, meanwhile... Back at the old state fair, uh, the New York Sheep and Yarn Show, where they've been doing the same thing the same way for time immemorial, they had a great show, <laughs> none of the drama. And, uh, you know, I've spoken to ones that apparently had gone, paid the money to go to the first one. Uh, I heard of someone who was turned away, went to go into the first one, and uh, one of the organisers said to her, well, you can come in, but you can't come in wearing that item of clothing because that's from a problematic designer you're kidding me no, no. 
No. Well, I don't know why I'm surprised. No, and they so they left and they then went to the the Rhinebeck proper and went and so a lot of the vendors that are there are mills. So they're the sort of businesses that mills and mill for other people. So they tend to be because it's a commercial that element is a commercial show. So they judge sheep. They uh, they trade and sell the fiber. The mills are there to buy the fiber. It is. It is actually a trading event that happens to have a small, uh, a retail sort of offshoot with it. And yeah, so apparently this person was so disgusted that they wow. went in and uh, all the money they'd set aside to set, spend it, all in folk, they chose, went to Rhinebeck and spent it there instead. Wow. Well, this links into the first thing we were talking about with Stephen West, because one of the things that they've been saying is that if people are seen wearing his shawl with the swastika on it, you know, people are going to say things and probably do exactly that and bar them from entering or even, you know, be verbally abused. Um, It's just ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. But I don't understand. I mean... Uh, I know you do events. I've never actually been to a wool event because I have a, a real thing about crowds. And this is kind of one of the, the things that fascinates me about it is that there's many people that also have problems with crowds, but they want to be accommodated for. You know, they want to have some... Whereas I think, well, no, that's my problem. I'll just order online. You know, mm. I can look at this yarn online. I don't have to actually go there. But... The, the general thing that seems to be out in culture now is that everybody's personal issue, whatever it is, has to be accommodated for. And it's like impossible. You can't do it for everybody. No, you can't. Because one of the things they were complaining about was that there was nowhere for people to go who were overwhelmed. Well, go outside. Go and sit in your car. You know, am, am I cruel? Maybe. I don't know. But I don't think people should have to accommodate people they didn't have a safe space Neil. (laughs) yeah a crying closet where was the crying closet (laughs) oh i know it's just ridiculous and and i know again listeners if you're listening to this thinking gosh these nutters must be crazy the (laughs) the stuff plays out in so many different places it plays out in um like literary, literary circles, it plays out in uh, yoga. It, it does have a tendency to be in the places where women congregate. I am going to put that out there. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you said that. And I didn't. Yeah, no, I'm actually <laughs> going to put that out there and own it because I, unfortunately we are our own worst enemies and that's where these things do happen. So if you're sort of sitting there thinking, oh gosh, this sounds just like my a salsa dancing club or my Zumba group or my yoga or whatever it is that you do. Um, yeah, it does. It, it happens everywhere. Honestly, then if you're looking at all of this, everybody, do go back and listen to the first interview I did with Neil because there's a lot of background that we talked about in that yeah. interview. And then also Blocked Magazine. Tell us where they can find Blocked Magazine and access back issues because, as you said, it's free. Yeah, it's all free, and uh, it, I intend to keep it there indefinitely. So uh, whatever happens in the future, the back issues will always be there. So um, the best place to find it is if you go to Linktree and just type in Blocked Magazine, and then all of the issues are on my Linktree, which if you use Instagram uh, on the Blocked Mag uh, Instagram account, you'll see a link to the Linktree there. Um trying to think where else i'm most uh active on instagram rather than anywhere else so that's the best place to find it but other than that linktree block magazine and it's all online we don't do any paper magazines uh obviously because that's 
to keep the cost down because we can't afford it. Um, and so far, we've got 10 issues released, and I've got issue 11, which will, should be released mid-November. And that issue is going to go into much more detail about the things that we've just been talking about today because, more so, because there's so much stuff coming out that I couldn't tell you today. You know, there's so many things that I can't verify because that's the thing with the magazine. We have to try and verify everything before we put it in there. So it's, uh, you know, it's a better source of um, of uh, what's actually going on, really. Mm. Um so uh, yeah, and this issue we've got quite a few patterns as well. So um, uh, no swat ah well when I say no swastikas, we will be featuring Stephen West's design. So what I'm hoping to do is the people that haven't been able to show those designs because Stephen West has banned them will be able to submit them to the magazine. And if you want your your shawl to be seen, I will put it in there like a little gallery. Oh, that's a nice idea. Because it's actually really pretty. I've seen a couple. Oh, it's of great! People. It's I like really, it. It, as I said, as you said, it's that that classic quilting pinwheel in the centre, and it's really yeah. lovely. I think I think it's also called a Saint Bridget's Cross as well. So some people who know what that is, and also um, some other people have said it's a bit like a Celtic knot. Mm-hmm. So um, so if you don't want to, you know, if, if you can't visualise it, hopefully that'll make it a bit easier to imagine. But it isn't a swastika. I mean. I don't know. Did you see a swastika in it when you saw no, it? In the end? I, I saw a windmill. So, <laughs> well, that means we're both Nazis, Marie. You oh, do realise that I because know. we and don't you, see the swastika. <laughs> you know, I often talk about this stuff in terms of culture, and I've uh, used this reference for a number of people now. That it's a bit like those three D, you know, those eye puzzles, those three D eye puzzles that were yeah. really popular through the late ninety, through the nineties and the early two thousands. This is what this world is like, that it's like one of those puzzles. You can look at it for the longest time saying, I don't get it, I don't see anything. And then you just sort of (laughs) kind of squint your eyes a little bit and hold your tongue in the right place. And then all of a sudden, it miraculously appears. And once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. (laughs) Yeah, that is true. Um, Although I would still say, if you see the swastika, that's on you, not Stephen West and not anybody who knits it. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Well, look, I just want to thank you. It was so good to catch up. We could honestly, Neil and I could talk for hours and I don't want to do that to everybody here, but it has been good to catch up. And hopefully if you're not somebody who is in the yarn community, what this does is that you take this information and then you can think, ah, I can actually see this unfolding in whatever group it is that I'm involved with because this scenario plays out in so many groups uh, and it just shows you how the ideology sort of seeps in. Actually, I tell you, and I know that because you potentially uh, follow, I did speak to Josh Slocum from the Disaffected podcast. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. yeah, and he talked about his cluster B personality disorders. There's more than one or two of those floating around in their world. Right. Is there not, Neil? Yeah. Well, I've been doing a bit of research into narcissism because I'm finding that fascinating. And that is, I think a lot of uh, what is behind some of this nonsense. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, And there are so many narcissists. I mean, I know um, people that don't know about these uh, personality disorders, many of us have narcissistic traits, you know, bit of vanity, for example, but true narcissism, I've actually written an article about it for the next issue, true narcissism is very specific. And once you know what it is, and when you realise how you rec- how you can recognise it in other people, you'll be surprised how many people are 
narcissists out there. Oh, and I, I have a theory that many of these woke uh, people are narcissists, partly because, and also narcissists are generally created. I don't think narcissists are always born that way. They are created through circumstance and environment. And many of them who, you know, the generation that was brought up to be special and to have a you know, a, a trophy for just participating. Many of those now are narcissists because they can't understand why they're not the centre of attention, you know, and this is what a lot of this is about. Mm. All right, that'll be fascinating. So that's uh, this has been Neil James from Blocked Magazine. As Neil said, it is a free publication, so do go and check that out. I'll make sure that we have the link with the lovely Liz at inbox at realitycheck.radio. And, of course, 2057 is the text number if you'd like to share your comments with us here at RCR. Hey, thanks, Neil. And we'll have to not leave it so long before we do this again. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'll, I'll come on any time. You know that. <laughs> uh, take, take care. Thank you. Thank you. As I mentioned in the chat with Neil, you will recognise the behaviours displayed in the knitting wars in your own communities. Another interview I've done that also talks about these personality types that crop up all too frequently in this space are those with the cluster B personality disorders. Make sure you listen to my interview with Josh Slocum from the Disaffected podcast on these. It can be found on my counterculture page of the app. Don't forget to send us your feedback and thoughts, though. Inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio slash members and join now. Good morning and welcome back to Counter Culture here with Marie on Reality Check Radio. Joining me now from down south is Annie Hart, and this is one of the many great Kiwi voices. This is a woman that knows stuff about a lot of stuff. And we had a great catch up and a chat before we did this last week. And I was like, wow, we need to talk about some of these topics. Annie, welcome along. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good. And one of the things you and I, we had a big old natter the, the other week. One of the things that came up in our conversation was debt. Yes. And no one, it's like a dirty little four-letter word, debt, sure is. isn't it? Yeah. Why do you think people don't want to talk about it? Is it a dirty little secret? I think people are a wee bit ashamed to um, share their financial situation if they feel they haven't done well. Mm. Um, I think that a lot of people that look affluent on the outside are actually struggling with debt and they just don't know. They've never been taught how to handle it. Nobody's showing them how to do it and they don't understand the debt that they're in. It shocks me that people don't know what interest rate they're paying for their credit card, for example, or um, what their mortgage rates are, or when their mortgage is due to, um, you know, short-term fixed rate to be released. And these things are not hard to learn, but you just need someone to teach you how to how to do it. Exactly. And it's mm. difficult when you've got a government, whether it be local government or national government, which is enabling poor yes. financial performance and yep. And they're not modelling good behaviour themselves. So I did find it a little bit funny when Grant Robinson is announcing that they're wanting to have financial literacy as part of the education portfolio. Obviously, yep. he skipped those <laughs> classes, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, billions of dollars of debt that we didn't have before. How many? 70 billion or something? Oh, no. Well, I think we were up Over to, in terms of the, the balance of payments, I think last I heard it was somewhere around 100, 196 billion. 
gosh. And I think that works out to be about $80,000 per Kiwi, I, I read. Yeah, that it's a massive that's shocking. money. Passing so, that on to your legacy for your children and grandchildren, that's just not on. It's not So cool. in, in terms of debt, like when things are roaring and going well and you've mm-hmm. got low interest rates, yes. the temptation to actually – uh, chalk things up either on a low interest unsecured loan, lower yep. interest unsecured loan, or on a house mortgage or buy property is is really alluring for it people. Is. But it is now that those yep. interest rates have gone up, and I think most average Kiwi households are paying a thousand dollars more wow. a month on their the interest mortgage. payments. Yeah, yeah, on, on the interest on their mortgage. Yeah, yeah. Let's walk through for an average. Household well, I, that's feeling the squeeze. What are yep. the initial traps that they fall into, and what you need to watch well, out for? Okay, so so just a bit about what I've been doing with people the last three years since this. Um, we've had a, a very you know progressive squeeze on our economy, and people have lost jobs and lives and all that stuff. It's left a lot of people managing money that haven't been used to managing money before, or it's left a lot of people with less income than they had. And so the traps I'm seeing are credit card debt, right? I think the best thing you can do for your credit cards if you're someone that's prone to debt is to cut them up, which I have done in my past, and it was the most helpful thing I'd done. I think now is not the time to borrow money from a bank. If you need a new washing machine and you can't afford it, you're better to borrow the money from a friend or to do without to wash your clothes in the bath, you know, like if you're really broke. Um, and that sounds really harsh, but many, many cultures don't have all of those um, those those things. So we can, we can be resilient. I think buying new stuff to comfort yourself is a really big trap. And I think, you know, that's often cars, bikes, um, flat screen TVs and new furniture. And I've seen people get themselves into terrible debt at high interest rates just because they wanted a new couch. And they didn't understand that that 18% on their credit card is 18% until you've paid it off. You know, they think of it as a one-off. You know, it might take them two years to pay it off, so they've paid 18% on 18%. And they don't understand that that couch is not $800 on special, it's cost them $1,400 or whatever it's cost them, you know. Comforting yourself by buying stuff when you're in debt is really, really dangerous. You better to go to an op shop and take $10 and grab a couple of things there, which which is good. Yeah, so when I work with people who are in debt, and it has been mainly people who have a small mortgage and they want to get away from the bank. So can I give you an example of a woman who told me I should share this information with you? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Real yep. world examples, I think. We'll call her Jane. So Jane works for me right? I see her regularly. We get on really well. And I we were talking about financial matters and she said they have a $40,000 mortgage and they want to get away from the bank and they want to get their title back because the bank holds your title and you have to release your title. And often it costs money when you release your mortgage. $40,000 debt. She then disclosed to me that she had a $10,000 credit card debt But she also had $10,000 in savings, which was earning no interest. Then we talked more deeply about their financial situation. And I said, do you feel like you're being pinched? And she said, no, right now, since I have this job, we're doing fine. And I said, "Um, how much are you paying off each fortnight on your mortgage? And she said, $200. And I said to her, okay, would you like to get rid of your mortgage in 18 months? And she said, yes. And I said, I can show you how to do it. So the first thing we did is we cut up her credit cards. So as she paid off her credit card, she ended up not paying uh, $10,000 times uh, $1,800 a year in interest 
on her credit card because it was always maxed out. So we got that down and now she uses it. If she buys something, she pays it off every month. Therefore, you pay no interest. Mm -hmm. So that was the first step. Now, that was my first step when I was badly in debt myself. So I've been there. The second step is when you have savings, apply the savings to your mortgage because they're not savings. You're not saving, actually. You're paying, let's say, 6% or 7% on your mortgage to have the privilege of the savings. So she said to me, oh, but I want to spend that doing up the bathroom. And I'm like, pay it on your mortgage. Oh, we thought we might put some solar panels up. I'm like, pay it off your mortgage. Um, We thought we might do an overseas trip. Pay it off your mortgage if you want to be debt free, truly. So she's paid that off her mortgage. So now the mortgage is 40000 right? Her credit card debt went to zero within a month. Can you believe it? I mean, she just it just went. Now, in my situation, it took me two months to get rid of my credit card debt. It's just changing habits. I haven't even done budgeting with her, but she said we're not feeling the push. So I said, go into your banking app or online and double your payments. She said, oh, we could triple them and we wouldn't feel it. And I said, triple your payments. So then she went on sorted and figured out that if she did all those things, her debt would be over in two and a half years instead of, uh, I think it was 13 years they had it on. And that wasn't interest only, the the, the um, mortgage. And then I said, when is your mortgage due for refixing? And we talked about um, how to stagger payments so you could pay off lump sums, which is what my husband and I have done to become debt-free, which we are and have been for some time. And then I've given her extra work and she has an Enyo business. And I said to her, if you could make $3,000 you put $3,000 aside per month from your wages in this business. Could you do that extra? And she said, I think I can. And I've said, I'll give her extra shifts. And every time she gets an extra shift, it'll go against her mortgage. So we've worked out that when her husband turns 50 in just over a year, she should be mortgage free. Now that's going from 13 years down to one and a bit years. It's only because she wasn't aware of how those things worked that she didn't know how to do them. Nobody had ever shown her, just like nobody had ever shown me. Well, there's also something to be said for those skills of basic budgeting and fiscal yes. literacy, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. Now, now, but we did that without the budgeting. Now, we could have added in the budgeting and we know how to run a budget sheet. But I would say um, there are many, many free budget services run by mm. churches all around New Zealand. So if you are embarrassed about your spending, like, for example, she's a very simple woman like I am in terms of her needs. She doesn't get pubic waxing, right? <laughs> pubic. <laughs> she doesn't get waxed. She doesn't do nails. She doesn't get her hair done. She doesn't go out and buy frivolous things like jewellery when she can't afford it. She's very sensible. But I do know a lot of people when we've looked in their budget that have $150 a month in there of that sort of stuff. Nor does she eat out very often. She's more likely to do a picnic with the family. Mm. Um, nor do they go on holiday. And so now we've built in a yearly holiday into her budget that she can do. It's only, you know, maybe going um, to a town a few hours away mm. and, and booking an Airbnb. Cheeky coffees. We had to do a microscope over our budget last year. Yep. And not that I was actually a cheeky coffee person, but I had a friend that was also doing the same thing. Yep. And she was appalled at what she was yep. spending Yep. on coffee because when you think about it yep. coffee now is minimum a cheap coffee if you do five. an espresso is five dollars and if you I paid the other day 
Yeah. So if you're doing, some people yep. I know have it in their routine that they do a coffee every day before yes. they go to work. So that's two. five, five. Yeah. So five, five, let's say $25 a week. Well, yep. you 25 times five. So yep. if you go, that's, um, so that's at 125, put a zero on that for 50 weeks of the year. So that's yep. $1,250 a year yep. on your lattes. You're better to buy a device to make your coffee with yourself, which I, and I don't got, yeah. mean a massive, great a machine. So what I do with my health coaching is I pick the lower hanging fruit. So I picked, with this woman, I picked the credit card debt first, and then she trusted me. Mm-hmm. And then I asked her about her mortgage and her repayments. And when she said $200, we both laughed until we fell on the floor about how ridiculously low that was. We laughed and we laughed and we laughed. And I said, do you feel that at all? And she said, no. And they're on a low income. I mean, a lowish income, one and a half people working. She's full-time and he's part-time. And he's not on a high income. And then she discovered, because he does some work outdoors, that they hadn't sent invoices to the people he's employed by. And she found $5,000 worth of unpaid invoices. So she's mm. whacked 15 grand off her 40 grand. So that's 25. Um, so she's got 25 now to deal with. And like what I've helped people do in the past is to draw a chart, and it's helpful if you colour it in, about where your debt level is now, and then every month colour another column in, and you just see this downwards thing, and you can you can sort of create a curve and go, oh, my gosh, in two years we'll be done, or three years or four years. But even if you've got an – or the other thing, if you have an impossibly large debt and you can't service it, you should be selling your property if you have property and downsizing. And a lot of people are not – okay with downsizing but my gosh you'll be free earlier and I would be rather be free in a small house than be a slave in a big house but it is about choices if you like your debt and you like your big house and you like you know how flash that is or the the opportunities it gives you then maybe you need a second job to pay it off faster you know we've got to be real we need to you need to work within what you have I've done a lot of coaching for this locally and I do it for free because it gives me a kick to see people get rid of their bank it really does. Particularly, you know, they're overseas-owned banks and they're there to make profit and they have fees and all sorts of stuff. But, you know, we talk about things like break fees and how to carve your mortgage up into bite-sized chunks to pay off. Um, that's worked really well. I mean, I can help. I can talk about that if you like. Yeah, well, one of the things, it, it's also, yeah, we can definitely talk about that. And I also want to talk about breaking habits too uh-huh. mm-hmm. because lots of the information that you've just talked about, like, is it's almost like a debt diet that you're putting yes, yourself on, isn't absolutely. it? absolutely. You're putting yep. yourself on a debt diet and you're needing to be quite disciplined. And this is going to sound really insane. So our family were affected by the uh, digital passport system. So we didn't have one. And so we were, like many Kiwis and many of our RCR listeners, shut out of society in this country for four months. Yep. Now, the silver lining of this for uh, particularly as in 2022, our financial situation changed. So we needed to do what many have done and many of the people you've coached. You go over things with a microscope. But the beautiful mm-hmm. thing, the, the one weird crazy silver lining, and I do not believe the government realised that this would happen, is that it forced all of us to change our spending yes. habits yeah, it did. based on where we could, could or couldn't access. Mm-hmm. And because we had to do that so suddenly in over four months, and and our thing that we love to do is to 
to entertain and to go out. And all of a sudden you can't go out. So you're having to create alternatives. When it meant that we had to go on our debt diet, it was nowhere near as drastic as we might have thought because we'd already started to create better habits around those things through that digital passport system. The coffees are certainly one thing. The going out was another. And you'll be amazed at what you can actually do at home. And it's not necessarily about the things and the places, but it's often about the people, isn't it? Yeah, we are quite self-sufficient and we've done that over years and years, 20 years. We we grow all our own food, we do our own preserves, we make food from scratch and I do coach people on how to do those things and they won't happen overnight. But taking one step is really empowering. So for if it's debt, um, you just need to have a good hard look at the pros and cons on your ledger book and be very honest about how much your actual debt is, add everything up. Um, is there a loan? Like we we loaned money to someone short term and he didn't admit until we were about to do it that he had a $10,000 debt we didn't know about. And he was going to keep on with that debt while loaning from us. And we're like, no, 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 no. Get rid of that $10,000 debt, then we'll loan you the money, you know, mm-hmm. and we'll help you to do that. And it was just, again, cutting up the credit card and calling in what people owe you. Like my daughter is great. Um, she loans money to people all the time, but does not very good at getting it back. So she's, you know, short of about $2,000. And I'm like, get the money back. Stop loaning money to people. Oh, but they, no, they've got to learn how to stand on their own two feet. And often it is just about cutting out. It might be just one thing. It could be learning to cook well. I know a woman who I love dearly who I couldn't name, but they eat out about five times a week because they're so busy. And so she needs coaching as to how to do a slow cooker that's going to last them three meals. And you just, you only have to make seven meals a week. So let's do a slow cooker, let's do a roast and let's do two stir fries. And that's the week done. Mm. People just, they get stuck. And when people start making their own food, they save money on their groceries. Let's say your grocery bills, I don't know, 200 bucks a week you might be able to cut it to 150. There's 50 bucks you can put against your debt. There's always a way. There's always, always a way. And even people that don't have earnings, they are being supported by the government. There's a way that if they're in debt, even if it's a very small amount at a time that they can get out of it. And it might be they have to shift in with their parents for a while. Mm. It might be that they have to bring in an extra flatmate and sleep Mm. on the couch, give them their room right? Yeah. It might be they need to put up a tent outside in the summer and rent out their room. I mean, there's there's, there's ways of doing it. And, and isn't it interesting you say that, right? Because you and I are a similar age. Yeah, we are. And, you know, back in the day, going flatting and even being in flatting situations through your 20s or even in your 30s wasn't that uncommon. It was more the norm. And I remember when I bought my first house, mm-hmm. I had, I paid for the mortgage by bringing flatmates and 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 short-term borders I used because I was in a holiday area so I would have short-term borders that's I had a four-bedroom house I was in I was only using one of those bedrooms Mm -hmm. whereas now you see these young couples who have this expectation that they purchase a home if they're lucky enough to do that and they're the only ones that are going to to live in it it's crazy it's absolutely crazy it doesn't make sense if you're wanting to get that because the thing is no matter how high your income is debt is debt and it's sucking you dry you know if you have a mortgage of I don't know let's say you've got a mortgage of three hundred thousand dollars at six percent three sixes or eighteen thousand dollars a year in interest you're paying Mm -hmm. and people don't get that look I've got another example in my extended family a young couple they must have bought a house years ago for three hundred thousand or so 
And I mean, it is their choice and I totally respect it, but they've got almost as much mortgage as they did when they bought the house probably 15 years ago. And to me, that's nuts because you could pay off, they spend their money on holidays. They could just choose to pay off another five grand a year off their mortgage and their mortgage would be way down. But I mean, that's a different philosophy, but they don't understand that they are paying $18,000 a year or whatever it is for the privilege of that decision. And they get nothing for the $18,000, nothing at all. That's more than a grand a month. Mm-hmm. What's a grand and a half a month? That's a lot of money. $1,500 is a lot of wage. So this is actually cycles back then to the, the coaching that you're talking about. Because yeah. often when you're doing health coaching, I yeah. would have thought there would be quite a strong intrinsic link between health yes. and debt. Absolutely. Absolutely. When I do my health coach coaching, coaching, it's the same thing. Recently, um, my sister has allowed me to coach her, which is a great joy to me for health. And she thought it would be hard, but we're just doing one step at a time. And in her case, we're cutting out sugar and gluten. Easy to do, really easy to do. And when I looked at what she's eating, I'm going, well, that's good. That's good. That's good. That's shit. Let's get rid of those three things and we'll substitute them with these three things. So she's eating more fat and more avocado and more meat, right? And more vegetables, replacing the the crap she was eating. And she's happy, Mm -hmm. easy, transforming her. So the same with debt. You don't have to do it all at once. You do it step by step. But you have to start by being honest then you need to look at your interest rates you're paying on debt. Mm. And I always go for the debt with the highest interest rates to get rid of. And all the other thing is you can consolidate. So let's say you've got a mortgage, but you've got a, a very high credit card debt that you don't think you can manage. Um, and maybe another HP that's not on tick anymore and they are at 18% and your mortgage is at six. Well, then it makes sense to convert that debt into mortgage debt, which you can do at the bank. Mm-hmm. And then, you, then you've got an honest figure to start with, and then you can look practically at how you can um, how you can chunk that down. But chunking debt is something that I also teach people. That's not the first step. That's probably the second or third step. Yeah, and that's exciting. That's and I, I like the way too time. that you break it down into small bites. I yeah. think when you're changing habits, and this is again the silver lining from the digital exactly. passport system. Exactly. All of us were forced into something so quickly we and we were. all had to adjust and it was at that time that mm. I over that period of time that I remember saying to the family right we now need to look at everything because we've made a decision and it's the the financial landscape is going to change uh, yeah. next year and and I just said to my husband one day I said you know what I said because we, we've always I agree with you I've always been a person that credit cards if you can't afford to pay it off in its entirety each month don't have it don't use it so that's where I have always been having in my 20s fallen into that trap myself so been there done that I did did that as a single parent I relied on my credit card and uh, when I met my current husband who's very frugal in fact I have to credit him with at least half of this I take his ideas and develop them but it was him that said, well, why don't you chop up your credit cards? And I just got mm. out scissors and went chop, 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 chop. So did I. Liberating. Yeah. We did the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I did it's exactly the same thing. It is a trap. You're right. That is a trap. So the next thing um, we did is we went through and I said to my husband, you know, I keep looking at the credit card because I track it like a hawk. Yeah. And every month, and I kept thinking, 
I, you know, we're not eating out. We're I'm watching what we're spending at the supermarket. We've got the vegetable garden rolling. Yeah. I'd um, bought a secondhand freezer, best two hundred dollars I've ever spent in my Ooh. life. A secondhand little stand up freezer, so I could batch cook stuff and freeze and do right. all of that thing to save money there. But I was still seeing this. The bill was not dropping mm. as precipitously as I wanted. So I said what to the it? husband. So that's what I thought because we because we put everything through that credit card to it's, track it and, to and take the loyalty advantages off that. Yeah. I said to him, you know what? I'm going to go through this with a fine tooth comb. Right. And I went. I took six months worth of statements. Right. Because not all the payments are monthly. Yeah. Uh, six months worth of statements, and I went through line by line. Yeah. Uh, to see what was there, and wow, the hidden fees that you find, like those digital subscriptions that say take mm. out the free trial, yes, yes, and yes, you can cancel yes. within thirty days. But you- yeah, so dangerous. You need to diarize those. Ooh. I recently I fell in the trap. I got this fitness app that I never used. It was $46 for three months. Three months rolled over and I got bloody charged again. And that's a trap. So that's where diarising things is great if you're trialling stuff. Absolutely. And we went through and things like Netflix subscriptions yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Get because you it. know what? What's I mean, let's face it, what, what is good to watch on the telly these oh, days? Gosh. But you'll be amazed at what you can access for free. Yes. Yes, yes, you can. You can. And although YouTube is becoming a bit of an evil empire, there's amazing numbers of videos of how to on YouTube, including how to get rid of your debt, how to. If people go, um, how do I render my own fat? YouTube. How, um, how do I can my own tomatoes? YouTube. How do I make a stew? YouTube. I taught recently somebody how to make use a slow cooker to cook meat. Um, they'd never done it before and it was they couldn't believe how simple it was, you know. But um YouTube videos for everything. So what I do is I just watch an awful lot of YouTube videos and I've just taught myself how to knit again and um I use YouTube videos for techniques. It's great, mm. cheap. Well, it's free at the moment and while it's still there and Rumble. I mean Rumble's got some good stuff. So someone is now listening to this, they're at home and they've got that, you know, five thousand dollar credit card debt sort of breathing down their neck at 18% interest and they've got the wee bit of mortgage. So we're going to get rid of that, cut up that credit card first and foremost, get the scissors out, people. See you later, Sam. Consolidate, that's interesting. So you're saying rank everything from highest interest rates and most expensive down and consolidate that down. So we've done all of that. We've consolidated all of that. We've got everything uh, either sitting in that mortgage or if they're a, so or if they're somebody in a situation where they don't have a mortgage so they're at home they've not been able to afford a mortgage yep. they've got rents climbing through the roof yes. uh, and that uncertainty there yeah what are some of the things that they can do in terms of pulling well, they back? can they can they can unless they are living below their means once you've got rid of your credit card debt um then you're being real with what you're spending if they've got other loans they've consolidated, they're already going to have the interest rate they didn't spend on the credit card to help accelerate paying back those other loans. So let's say they had a small credit card debt that maybe, I mean, I $10,000 debt is about roughly, roughly 70 bucks a month. So that's $70. Instead of going, yay, I'm going to buy new shoes, you go, yay, I've got rid of my credit cards. Yay, I'm amazing. You put that $70 a month into your next highest interest paying debt if there is another one. 
Um, and, and if it's not paying interest, you know, you've just maybe you've got an HP, pay off the HP faster, increase your repayments. Now, if you've got other debt, um, and maybe you've consolidated and you've got a small debt in the bank, let, let's say you don't have a house, you want to get a house, you've got a $20,000 debt you've consolidated now, then when you go online with any of your debts, you can um, up your payments, and often there's a ceiling to how high you can go, but if a, with a mortgage you can. In some cases, you have to do a lump sum payment, so I would have go to the bank and pay them you know, a grand at a time or whatever chunk you've got. Or if it's online and you can tweak up your repayments, if it's a mortgage, you can, instead of paying you know, $250 a week, you might make it $280 and you just tweak it up. Once you've got rid of all of your debt, which could be years and years, you are then in a position to go, well, I paid $250 a week on my debt. I've now got that money I can transfer into savings and you start saving. And then I would recommend you start your saving, you go to your bank, it's in a, a place that, like a bonus saver where you get extra for putting for increasing it every month. Um, for example, at the cooperative bank, they've got a, a savings one that's of 1.75%. But at the end of every month, you get a bonus if you put more money in and it lifts it up to 3.5. And then when you've got a chunk big enough, which can be just $1,000, you do a short-term interest rate through a bank or a building society. So you put it in the bank by itself and it earns probably 6% is the best you can get for a year at the moment, 575 for six months right now, which is great, good time to put money in the bank. And then you chunk it up from there. I use various services like Simplicity. They're really, really good. And there's another one called Booster, which is really good. And they do quite good returns long term. So when you've got five grand together, that's what my daughter did. She had the same method. She puts the five grand away and forgets about it. Um, and then you build up another five grand and put the five grand away and forget about it. And before you know it, you're renewing an investment, maybe at 20 grand. And before you know it, you might have a 20 and a five and then a 20 and a 10. And that's how you climb your way up. If you are wanting a house deposit or you are wanting, I don't know, it could be something you want. It might be a car. It could be a trip overseas, but you're not in debt anymore. So you can spend the money. Mm. I recommend people save for their retirement. My mum and dad cost themselves 290000 in care in their last years, um, which wasn't provided by the government. So um, I know that's really long-term thinking, but there are reasons to save for the future, mm. for sure. We all get older, we need help. Oh, the other thing is, I don't have life insurance. I don't have health insurance because I would rather save the money and pay for stuff when I needed it. So that's the way we roll. I know that those big chunks often surprise people. They have uh, rates if they own a house and insurance that come maybe once a year. So that's a budgeting thing. You might want to chunk that out so you pay it over several, you know, monthly. So it becomes a monthly fee. But that's a budgeting conversation, really. And budgeting advice is really easy to get if you reach out for free yeah, yeah. in your community. Yeah. 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 Many churches. Don't be ashamed. Gosh, yeah. you know, there is. I look at social media now because uh, I've got two sons, two very, very different sons. <laughs> One son, he's had a little part-time job since the end of last year. He has saved so much of what he's earned. He just doesn't see the need to spend it. He doesn't have that desire for things. Mm. He's a, very much a homebody. His younger brother, on the other hand, he's on social media and he sees the latest T-shirt or the brand of this uh, and all of this. Yes. And yeah. I do wonder, because I look at how I live my life in my 20s, when I lived in the, in the city and I had my first high-paying job, 
fell into that trap or the lifestyle she's exciting oh it is exciting and you're finally free of mom and dad and you can do all of those things and then you give yourself the rude surprise (laughs) you get you get through all of that and you and you you know you come back to your senses but so many of these young people now I mean I'm seeing young people which is great living their best life in their 20s and their 30s some of them even into their 40s yeah and you have these couples who are married but sometimes with or without children and they have they're taking that WEF you will own nothing and you'll be happy very Very. seriously Annie well they've been told haven't they I've been told. Um, yeah, so one one thing that people spend an awful lot of money on that can be a hidden sort of thing is alcohol, an awful lot. So if you happen to be gregarious and love to drink piss, <laughs> unless you've got a really good wage. I mean, I know, I know people that drink a quarter of their wage, not personally anymore, but when I was younger, lots of people. And that's okay as a phase if you can afford it and you don't want to save. But if your goal is to get debt-free and to save, you need to drop it. Make your own homemade kombucha. Easy as heck. 2% alcohol, you know, um, even brew your own alcohol, you know, um, or ask for it as a gift for your birthday, a bottle of whiskey or whatever, you know, like, but but cut it down. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem there is, is spending money is like an addiction and I have also coached in my past people who are alcoholics and until they're prepared to let that go, there's probably not much you can do with them at all because they're not, they're not going to be honest with themselves. Mm. Well, maybe they will be, but maybe their self-belief is that they can't do it until they had a self-belief that they can do it. It's not worth working with people. It's I've, you know, I've had that a lot. I've done a lot of coaching where people have said, yep, I'm a gunner, I'm a gunner um, on various things. Um, I've done a lot of network marketing I want to be free. I want to have, um, you know, these choices, but they're not prepared to do what it takes. That's like starting a business, right? If you want a business to be successful, you have to be all in. And you would know, well, we both know about that. Mm, we both had businesses. Yeah, definitely. We still have businesses. So, yeah. You know, you need a good accountant when you want to do tricky mm. stuff. But for the basic stuff, getting rid of debt, many, many Kiwis are in trouble. And it makes me sad to think that they are disempowered by the debt. Mm-hmm. Right. So Annie's number one guide out there for people that are wanting to have a little bit of a debt diet. Number one, get that credit card debt under control if you have it. Chop those cards up. See you later, Sam. Yep. Number one. Two, look, if you're able to consolidate on like debts with higher amounts of interests, get that consolidation happening. So that'd be number two. Number three, then that that's when the budgeting services uh, can come in. And as you see, the churches have really good services. I know some of the citizens and vice bureaus have great yeah. um, services. So definitely do that budgeting. But even if you, you know, and you're finding in your heart of hearts that you don't want to do that or you don't have access to that, just do what I did and just print out your bank statements mm-hmm. because unless you're paying a lot of cash mm-hmm. in places. Mm-hmm. Um, Look at the the digital payments. And another little trick that you can do, and we actually did this over that period of time, one of the things that we did is that we went through and had a look at those, because a lot of those digital payments actually go on credit cards. If you cancel, if you're thinking to yourself, right, what are the ones that we need to keep? You know, things like utilities and stuff. Mm -hmm. You move those to a bank account. And by cancelling that credit card, it gets rid of everything. And if things will come out in the wash of the people that you know that you need to keep. But just not only cut the card, but cut the the account. If you're you're a card user, 
and you have credit cards. What we did is, and the funny words credit and debit, because they're actually around the wrong way. Credit card, you don't have credit. They're giving you credit. Debit card, you're not in debit. You're actually in credit. So you have a bank account that you start building up, your everyday bank account or whatever. What I do when I buy my wool and other things online, because I do a lot of online shopping, I use my debit card. Um, So I just use my um, normal bank card, which has a MasterCard or a Visa on it, Mm. And that's the number I put in because it's it's just seen the same as a credit card, but I only spend what's in my bank. And if it's not in my bank, I wait. That's my yes. grandparents did that. They never had cards because they only had the bank account. So it's a false sense of... And like, that's also, that I think that's where the cards came into play because, yeah. you know, they came into common usage, I know, when we were in our 20s. And before then, it was all cash. I mean, I remember my first yeah. jobs, I got paid in cash. Yeah, 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 and a, and, a, and a wee brown envelope with the and writing. a wee brown, yes, yeah, and, and it they, was easy. And it because... Came to you and it had coins in it because you <laughs> might have paid one hundred and sixty-two dollars fifty-eight or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and when you got paid in cash, yeah. your budgeting was quite easy because when that sucker was gone, it was gone. Well, actually, just um, a wee segue into cash. I'm very passionate about cash, and I'm always passing out the um, you know, have you seen those um, voices for freedom um cash oh, the cash cards? flyers? Yeah. Yeah, I'm always I'm giving them to tellers because I pay cash for everything. But what we do, what we've done, is we we used to have to track everything on our bank account, but now we use cash for groceries, coffees out, meals out, incidentals. And we have a tin, actually. I've got it here, my cash tin, where money goes in and money comes out because I have a couple of ventures where that's how I get my money. Mm-hmm. Thank you, New Zealand government. And if it's not in the tin, we don't spend it. So let's say we have income that comes in digitally, and I do. I go to the bank every fortnight and take out a few grand, and I put it in the cash tin because we want cash to stay alive. That's just a passion of ours. It's not about budgeting, really. But I know many people, and my mum was the same. She opened her purse, and she would look inside and see the $20 back then that bought you a lot of money. I've got to go to the butcher and the shop. Kids, you want an ice cream, let's go to the butcher in the shop first. If there's money left, you'll get an ice cream, and that's what she'd do. Then when her weekly money was gone, she'd wait until the next week when Dad would bring home his pay packet and put X amount in her purse. So that's another way of doing it. But you're not tracking it then. If you want to track your spending, you take a notebook, and that's what I've done before, and you just write down everything you spend, and you'll be surprised. I went to the $2 shop. I had a coffee. I bought some toilet paper. Um, bad example oh I bought that scarf because it was only $15 and then you can still track it so but bank statements if you do everything with a card bank statements are very trackable and we've done that for business for years we just print off the statement and we go through every month and write down what that was what category so that's an, you know there's there's lots of budgeting methods but mm. um, yeah cash is just another one but it's just a bit different Right now, if anyone has any questions, remember this. I'm talking to Annie Hart. We're talking. We're going. We're talking about debt diets, people. I know the sort of you know too dirty four little words that begin with D, debt diet. Uh, we're and we're looking at just sort of getting ourselves that freedom of trying to release ourselves from debt. And I think once we've done that, we can also allow it. That gives us more freedom to make clearer and better decisions. So, you know, it's amazing the shackles that debt have. Uh, If you have any questions at all, 2057 is the text details, and we can uh, pass those on to Annie for you if you've got any questions. Any nuggets of advice you can leave our listeners with before we head off today, Annie? 
Oh, just if you really want to change how you feel about money, empowering yourself with some simple skills to control it a bit better are the way to go and you will feel good about yourself. So you've got to want it, but it's very, very simple. It's not hard once once you make the decision. So, yeah, I really encourage you. And I wish I could coach everybody, um, but um, people that know me can come to me personally if they want a bit of help. And we might even run a few workshops. Take the first step. And that might be just being honest. That's mm. all. One step yeah. is good. Yeah. Single step was, you know what they say, the best way to eat a whale is one bite at a time. Yeah. So there you go. Thank you very much. This has been Annie Hunt. We're probably going to get Annie back because she can speak on lots of different topics on how we can actually live our lives better and live our lives freer because that's what we want to do here at Reality Check Radio. Don't disappear here. We've still got great content yet to come. Marty's still to come here with Media Matters and then the Woke News of the Week. Brilliant. Thank you. Wasn't Annie Hunt great? Debt is something so many of us grapple with, and I love Annie's no-nonsense approach to helping us tackle this and have us moving on up and moving on out to a better financial future. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything. From listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews and checking out the latest blogs, all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here with Marie on Reality Check Radio. Media Matters is the name of the game and Marty is my partner in crime as always each week. Good morning, Marty. How are you? Good morning, Marie. I'm good, thanks. Good morning, everybody. Yeah, good. Let's go. I know, let's go. And we both did the thing on Sunday morning. (laughs) And by the thing is we watched the sports ball final. I I said to my wife, "I'll, I'll phone my dad about 10 minutes before the end and then pretend I didn't even know it was on. And she was like, yeah, do it, do it. You know, I'll, I'll tape it. And I was like, he's not going to find that funny. <laughs> oh, wow. I've only watched two games the entire Rugby World Cup, which for me is unusual. I've always been somebody that has really followed the World Cup. I used to love watching lots of pool games and smaller teams and and I loved all the other competition uh, traditionally, I would have been all over the things like the Australians getting knocked out and the Argentinians doing so well and all that kind of stuff. But I just didn't get there. But I thought, no, I am going to watch the final. Mm. That was convenient too, wasn't it? You didn't have to get up at two. That would have that would have that been would, a, a major helpful. headwind for you. And helpful, me. helpful. And uh, had the coffee, had the knitting. Uh, I have to say, it was not conducive to relaxing knitting time. <laughs> well, you know. Rugby is like a zoo that you can go to see masculinity and patriotism. It's like an endangered animal that's uh, not in the wild anymore. Mm. That colours my ability to immerse myself in it. And when you've got the zookeepers in charge, which they were. (laughs) You love a good animal. You can't help yourself, can you? I know, I can't. I can't. (laughs) i tell you what I thought. Uh, When I was watching the end of it and I was watching Sam Kane on the 
on the sideline after he got red card. And I was watching uh, Cheston Colby, the South African winger, just did his impression of a turtle and just stuck his head down in his jumper. I thought, man, that's a hell of a lot for men to have to wear. Sort of the flip side of my observation that there's no political mileage to be held in holding women accountable for their actions. <laughs> they really are. And I found myself, as I was watching him say, um, at the time I wasn't even aware, it caught me off guard that he stepped back. But we've, we've been here for two months now and anything around the head is ramifications, Kane said. I'm not here to discuss whether it was right or wrong decision. It can't be changed. Unfortunately, it's something I'm going to have to live with forever. And I was watching that and I was thinking, man, that's ownership. And it's it's unfortunate, you know, that because it's easy enough to do that sort of thing. Mm. And I was just sort of sitting there thinking, you know, I wish Christopher Hipkins' lost speech had been more like that. If Sam Kane had have given Christopher Hipkins' speech, it would have been, we actually won. And, you know, the wind was just blowing against us. And, and yeah, that's that's what did it. And if we had have seen Christopher Hipkins, you know, say, oh, you know, I began my political career when I was still in the messianic phase of youth and just sort of, you know, and this was encouraged by older politicians who'd been through the same process and were absolutely committed to a socialist revolution, ignoring history that tells us it only ends in imprisonment, rape, torture and starvation, labour camps and the death of millions. Jacinda and I thought we were totally right and virtuous and thought that through that simplistic logic of youth, we believed anyone who opposed us was evil. We didn't have the experience or competence to run a country and were so easily made into puppets by people like Klaus Schwab and investment and banking interests. <laughs> you know, that that's the kind of, I would have felt a lot better about his resignation speaker. If he had have had 10% of the ownership that Sam mm. Kane The consequences of Sam Kane's era is disappointment. The consequences of the Ginger Jabbers decisions that he made, that it was too hard to PR the leaving kids out as he was advised of the vaccination, it has been death. It's been disability. Mm. It's been kids who need heart transplants. So, yeah, that that's why I find it, if I'm getting into rugby, I almost think they're just trying to distract you. One of the things with the loss, and I think that, that's exactly it, it teaches disappointment. And I think, Kane saying what he did, bravo, you know, because he did own it. There'll be a lot of young New Zealanders that would have been watching that devastated, you know, particularly in that tweeny age and stage. But to see that and to see somebody standing up, owning it, feeling it, allowing them to feel the disappointment and, you know, where they go moving forward, I think is a good thing. This is real life and sometimes people lose. Well, I mean, that's, that's what, I mean, I love taking my kids to jujitsu. They lose a lot. You know, that's just the nature of the sport. But, you know, you can sort of see them. I saw my son, who's eight, you know, cop an elbow in the face. And I just sort of was filled with pride just seeing this. He sort of blinked and there was just this acceptance, just sort of <laughs> chokes the poor me out of them. You and I have been texting a little bit getting into the show. And it's funny because what you've, we've just talked about now brings us back to something that I said to you. I said, oh, you know, it's something that you brought up. And I way back, oh gosh, it was right towards the beginning. It was one of the earlier Media Matters shows. And I can't even remember what we were talking about. But you brought up the theory from Thomas Sowell, which I've got a funny feeling he wrote in a book in 1980. So it's been around for a long time. Yeah. And Thomas Sowell is, if you do not know who Thomas Sowell is, and it's S-O-W-E-L-L, he is an American economist. He is probably one of the greatest thinkers, contemporary thinkers of the American age. 
He's now, I think, at the Hoover Institution. He's in his 90s and he's still writing. I mean, the man is prolific. And he wrote a theory called the constrained versus the unconstrained. It's something that you brought up way back then. And then, of course, it popped up this week because of all these events that have been happening in the last week or two, I just thought it was really important to bring that back up again in light of what's been going on. So do you it's want to explain? It's becoming a lot clearer now, isn't it? It has become you, a lot, lot clearer. You see some genuine unhinging. Yeah. And, so, and I think a lot of people who are kind of, I guess, on our side of the fence in terms of, hey, we've got to question things and we've got to debate them, are starting to realise, hey, you, you, you know, we could debate all we want. We could bring all the logic to the table. What we're dealing with now are people who are dealing with that mass formation psychosis. We're not dealing with people who are in their right mind in many mm. ways. And I, f- I found that when I went back to Gisborne, I was astonished at how disconnected people were from what's going on. And, oh, I'm glad that's behind us. Someone called me a conspiracy theorist. And I said, well, what conspiracies have I theorized about? I try really hard to stick to data because you don't need theories. It's right there. You can go to the web pages and and read what they want to do. I'll just run through a brief description of what these two visions are, just to give you a bit of context. So the, the unconstrained vision is a belief that human nature is essentially good. Those with the unconstrained vision distrust decentralised processes and they're impatient with large institutions and systematic processes that constrain human action. They believe there's an ideal solution to every problem and that compromise is never acceptable. Collateral damage is merely the price of moving forward on the road to perfection. Progressivism. Soul often refers to them as the self-anointed. Ultimately, they believe that man is morally perfectible. Because of this, they believe there exists some people who are further along the path of moral development, have overcome self-interest, and are immune to the influence of power and therefore can act as a surrogate decision makers for the rest of society. If it's ringing some bells for you people, there is a reason why. The constrained vision, on the other hand, Sol argues that the constrained vision relies heavily on the belief that human nature is essentially unchanging and that man is naturally inherently self-interested regardless of the best intentions. Those with a constrained vision prefer the systematic process of the rule of law and experience of tradition. Compromise is essential because there is no ideal solutions only trade-offs. Those with a constrained vision favour empirical evidence and time-tested structures and processes over intervention and personal experience. Ultimately, the constrained vision demands checks and balances and refuses to accept that all people can put aside their innate self-interest. And I guess you could tie in with that. The unconstrained vision hates the idea of logos, of external objective morality. They go very heavily in the direction of Alistair Crowley's do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Mm, Absolutely. And what I love about this is that he wrote this so long ago, but also too is that this breaks down the left-right political paradigm, which I don't know about you, I feel has become more and more irrelevant 
as time yeah. has gone on. The well, media let, try to clutch onto it, but it's really not holding the relevance that it used to. Yeah, there's there's the less freedom, more government side, which the media is very heavily on, and there's the more freedom, less government side. Mm. And and with that, I use my assumption that governments love anything that makes people demand less freedom and more government. And I find that's a very good lens to view what the government does because it explains why problems never get solved. Yeah, and like Marty says, when you says more freedom, so you're thinking, oh, that's unconstrained. No, it's the absolute opposite. That's actually more, that is the more constrained point of view. So what I did do is I just grabbed the weekend papers and I had a little hot up of our usual suspects. So I avoided all the Rugby World Cup stuff because of which there was a ton and lots of really fluffy, I mean, they were obviously grasping for stories. It was the media marching on the spot, basically. <laughs> oh, it pretty much was. It was like, you know, how can we make a white wall interesting yeah. type stuff? Uh, so there was lots of that. So I went to our uh, all the usual suspects across the key papers and I broke down either the opinion pieces or articles into two groups. What came with an, an unconstrained mindset, which is essentially the mindset of perfection, but the distrust of a decentralised process. So in other words, more government, you know, like to have more control. And what was the unconstrained mindset in terms of where we're at? Because there was a lot of what is going to happen at the end of the week, crystal ball gazing. On the unconstrained side of the things, and I mean, this is only a very short list because there were a whole heap, Shane DePoe, Mike Munro, Thomas Coughlin, Miriam Bell, Virginia Fallon, Paula Penfold, Luke Malpas, uh, in the post there were a few, oh, Claire Trevitt, Fran O'Sullivan, well, I mean, she was obviously bored, uh, and we knew Darth Vance must have been having a really dull day because she was having to talk about something totally irrelevant in, in Wellington politics because that was about all she could muster. But I, I thought Darth Vance was getting ready for the new government. You know, suddenly concerned about unrestrained spending and opaque processes within central government and her coquettish little softened fringes back with a little little smile on the corner of her mouth. The Darth, the Darth Vance has, mm. has softened herself again. She's toying with it again. Toying with it. Toying with it. In terms of Vance with transparency, the other person that actually spoke about transparency, and this was the only article I found on the constrained side of the fence, was Bruce Cottrell. So I had two articles that showed absolute polar opposites on this vision. One was Bruce Cottrell in terms of the constraint. The other, also in the same newspaper... Was the tsunami oleaginous. And it was jarring in the juxtaposition because they literally were over the page from each other, was Mike Munro. Yeah, he's the parrot chick, Mike Munro. Mike Runrow, former Chief of Staff of Jacinda Ardern and was Chief Press Secretary for Helen Clark. That should tell you everything. However, full credit to Labour team, they deserve it. Outgoing government not leaving the big mess that some critics might claim, says Mike. Really, Mike? Let's start with the economy. The Herald headline this a week ago asked, is Christopher Luxon about to get lucky with a soft economic landing? After a horror run, the talk is now of the economy having turned a corner. Growth is returning and there is no recession. Cost of living pressures might be easing and wages are expected to outpace inflation. Mm. Okay, Mike. Obviously, you know, soupy yeah. going Give under. Give me $100 billion, dollars, Mike. And I'll achieve all sorts of things you can fill a column with. Yeah. Singing the praises of Grant Robertson, after a horror run, the talk now of the economy having turned a corner, 
yeah, as you said, this is a testament to the abilities of Grant Robertson, who managed the public purse as billions were spent supporting New Zealanders through COVID-19. The country was buffeted by a global slowdown and then the need to fund recovery from the January floods and Cyclone Gabrielle caused further financial stress. So just still having that thing where, you know, supported New Zealanders through COVID-19 rather than supported New Zealanders through the decisions they made around COVID-19. COVID-19 was a possum crossing the road. The COVID response was driving off a cliff to avoid hitting it and into a river of death. I loved it when he said, but there are signs that nationally coordinated approach designed to move beyond the DHB era postcode lottery that meant the quality of care was affected by where the patient lived is beginning to bear fruit. This is talking about um, Te Whara Ora. Waiting times for non-orthopaedic surgery are now being brought under control, and most notably thousands of more cataract surgeries are being delivered because of a new nationally consistent access threshold. Meanwhile... Across in the Herald on Sunday, half of cardiac surgeries overdue by Nicholas Jones. One in two New Zealanders needing heart surgery waited longer than the maximum time frame considered appropriate by these specialists. One in three patients are waiting far too long. In Wellington, one in three, Christchurch half, Auckland half, Dunedin 60%, and Waikato Hospital, a whopping 69% of patients were overdue for cardiac surgery in the time frame that their consultants wanted them to have it. I wonder if that's got anything to do with the information leaked out of the Wellington DHB that uh, cardiac events are up 80-something percent. Well, oh, yes, to get them having good numbers. I do not know. But here Probably is- long yeah, so here he is citing orthopaedic and, and cataract. Well, that's all well and good, but orthopaedic and cataract, I mean, uh, nowhere near as life-threatening as cardiac, just saying, Mike. Anyway, okay. Mm. And he then goes on to talk about the nurses. He goes on to talk about all the money in terms of restructuring. Again, a lot of this is about spending and promises and not delivery and outcome. Yeah, centralisation. Yeah. Meanwhile, across at Bruce Cockrell, Bruce says real transparency starts right at the beginning. Publishing the coalition agreement for everyone to see would be a great first step for the new government. So this was actually an idea mooted by David Seymour, if I'm not wrong, about those agreements. And I just love this. I've been trying to recall our perception of government before 2017. While we're all having differing political views, we probably tended to think of governments as fair and more importantly representative of the people who put them there. Sure, not everything was out in the open. It never is. But whether it was Key, Clark or those before them, we found our views were being well representative. When former Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and her Labour Party-led coalition came into power in 2017, she promised the most transparent government ever. Whether she knew it or not, she was implying that governments before her had been less transparent. I believe it now part of our history and her government and that of her successor were the least transparent of our lifetimes. Yeah. And people kind of assume, you know, this is getting back to the post-match rugby speech. People assume that she's gone away and gone, oh, I'm, I, I really messed up there. I failed in what I wanted to do. What she actually appears to be doing is thinking, I failed because the evildoers were saying mean things. So I'm going to go to Harvard and work on shutting them down. Because how could you address climate change if people don't believe in it? And it's working. 
It is working. The Ardern Hipkins government failed New Zealanders on a number of fronts, but the complete disdain for transparency and the impact of that on the country's people is probably one of their greatest failures. Well, again, probably not accidental. I mean, if they had said, look, you know, we've got no commercial experience whatsoever and we've got a very simplistic way of seeing the world where we're good and anyone who opposes us is necessarily evil. And actually, most of our policies come from the UN and the WHO and the World Economic Forum. If they had been transparent like that, it's probably a bit like, Mm. you know, if they had said, hey, we've got to give you some mandatory gene therapy, probably people wouldn't have gone for it. So is he alluding at that with this next passage? Along with her co-conspirators Robertson, Hipkins, Parker and Mahuta, Ardern presided over the government that chose not to be completely open and honest. In fact, they misled us and manipulated the media in the process while they conceived, crafted and delivered policies that in some cases bore no resemblance to what they campaigned on. Furthermore, they set out on a pathway to racially divide and re-engineer us societally, while core services such as schools, hospitals, roads, police, and even the judiciary failed us. Yeah, and I mean, you could add all sorts of things to that. The medical council failed us. Yeah. You know, there's that old adage, and this sort of falls back into Thomas Sowell's constrained, unconstrained idea. There's that adage that... uh, People on the left think that people on the right are evil and people on the right think that people on the left are stupid. I think what we're starting to see, and it's well overdue, is we've got to sort of basically move further left in the sense that we've got to start understanding that these people are evil. Mm. They are stupid, but ultimately their aims and the means that they're prepared to use are evil. Well, and that comes back to human nature is essentially unchanging. And and that's what concerns me is the level of censorship now is shutting down a whole bunch of these conversations, right? Oh, yeah. I looked up something about Kate Hanna. I, I wanted to find that quote about her saying that her attitude to life and her own identity was, was informed by Marxism. You can't find it. All you can find is a whole series of her articles and things lauding her and basically bewailing that she's been victimised by people saying mean things. Yeah. It's but, gone. It'll be probably on page 20 is where it'll be. Yeah because that's where they tend to hide these things. That whole aspect of human nature and what concerns me is with the level of censorship now and the inability for that town square, that the open discussions to be had, which many times we've said is the the nexus for this radio station to be created. This is where it leads. It leads to this level of control and then the convincing of people that this is not aberrant behaviour. This, in fact, is perfectly normal and more than perfectly normal. It is perfectly acceptable. So therefore, it's okay to sit around and rot away in your bed and and that is okay. And to the point again, there was another, uh, there was an article by Virginia Fallon, uh, cancelling culture, the art and etiquette of bailing. The Sunday Star Times, you look at this and you think, oh, this is just a little fluffy, just a little fluffy lifestyle article. That's and it, Yeah, and it is. For all intents and purposes, I mean, they were obviously, you know, because they're waiting for the final results and, you know, the sports ball was on, you've got to fill these column inches somehow, right? It's a holy beast of paper. Yeah, exactly. It is a thirsty beast. So this article is talking about the whole social concept of making plans, but then breaking them. Now, you and I are of an age where 
if you went and set plans, especially when we were younger, I mean, texting was still not the norm. It was you picked the phone up and you spoke to your mate, or you were at work actually. And you in went person. and caught your horse. Yeah. <laughs> Up. And you went and you were working with your friends and you actually had a cohesive social network, but it, it communicated and it spoke to each other. And if you set plans, uh, you tended to stick to them because if those plans were to change, you couldn't easily reach out to that person to change those plans, right? And there's an etiquette there. If you set a commitment with somebody, and I'm not talking like a, something big like a wedding that requires an RSVP, and they talk about this in the article, but just even simple things like yeah. let's meet for downtown for a drink after work. Or, it was hey, less flaking. Totally less flaking mm. because you respected the commitment and the time of the other person that you were dealing with. Even if you really didn't feel like it, you would often still go because you had made the commitment. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, the unconstrained world that we live in these days, flaking is the du jour thing to do. And there is an etiquette expert that they contacted, Susie Wilson. And I loved what she said here. Yes, she admits she absolutely has a foot firmly in the protocol of the world gone by. But etiquette is really just another word for good old fashioned manners. Flaking on people is rude, particularly if there's no reason. It's undesirable and stressful for the person you're doing it to. And it shows that that person does doesn't matter. And it then sort of talks about just the easiness and willingness that this current generation have just to literally just blow people off. And I read this and I thought, gosh, this just explains to me when dear leader says, this is what you're going to do. And I'm going to force you to do it. They just went, oh, okay. Yeah. I think uh, there's something about Generation X that's not examined uh, enough that I think in years to come will be more obvious is we had access to and got our asses kicked by grandparents who'd survived the Depression and fought in the Second World War. Uh, I've got a brother who's 10 years younger than me, and uh, he he didn't. He my, my grandfather was getting a bit doddery by the time he was a young man who uh, needed to be shaped. But um, that that's a difference between us. Uh, I used to get picked up. On a Saturday, and taken up to the farm where I'd split wood, build fences, dag sheep, drench, shoot the twenty-two, and so on. He let me drive the car at a while when I was twelve or something. Very irresponsible. And my brother said to me one day, "So he just used to pick you up, and and you just used to go and work, didn't you?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "How much did you get paid?" I said, "Oh, he used to give me, I guess, ten bucks now and then." And he said, well, what did that work out to an hour? I said, look, and until you asked me just now, I never even thought of it. I thought it was oh. a great deal. You talked to me about the Second World War, talked to me about growing up in a tent in the Wawaka Gorge and making money reading Māori, uh, their mail, because he could speak Māori and, you know, hearing their stories about being able to cross the, the river by just stepping on bodies and keeping your feet dry. I thought it was a good deal. I really wanted competence. And so that where that last link with that generation and, and that I think informs a lot of our values and uh, after us, they're not there so much. Yeah, well, we've been able to receive firsthand accounts of genuine hardship. Yeah, the depression. I, I had a job that he gave me to do once, um, pulling nails out of boards and straighten them up. 
because he used to have to pack them in on a horse and it took three days <laughs> as a consequence and, and very reluctant to waste things. Yeah, and also in time. Time yeah. is a funny old thing, you know, like when time in itself is something that's valuable, how important that is, and you need to make that time profitable, whether that be monetarily profitable or socially profitable or profitable in regards to uh, relationships and building families and communities. To actually waste somebody's time, I have to admit, is something that I get quite angry about. And I'm the first to admit with the hours that I work, I'm quite happy if I get to a, a weekend or a time and I'm thinking, oh, I don't have to do anything tonight. I can just sit and have a quiet glass of Chardonnay, do some knitting and watch some trashy television. Oh my gosh, that's such a treat. But that's not all the time. You know, like I, I appreciate mm. that. The, the, this is becoming the norm for this this whole generation. And there was a psychologist they interviewed, Dougal Sutherland, clinical psychologist, who said New Zealanders aren't the most assertive people. It's just easier to let things drop and avoid the awkwardness. Isn't that a sad indictment on the generation currently? So I've organize play dates sometimes with my kids friends who are a lot younger than me and uh, one of them in particular I've said you know it's it's interesting doing this with you because it gives me an idea of what it's like to date in the modern world just getting flaked and ghosted and you not answering texts and stuff like that yeah. you know I can kind of get an idea about what it's like well, it, indeed. And you know what? She laughed about it, but I think she was a little bit embarrassed. Because your kids are just a bit younger than mine. One of the things I've really fostered with my kids is a really they've got a really wonderful, strong social group. So both boys, there's a huge, because they're so close together in age, there's a huge crossover. One of the things I've always maintained, and I talked to Daniel Principer about this several weeks ago, is I've always maintained an open house policy because I want these kids to be able to get together and meet in person. Because at the moment, one of the few places that they do it is at school and then they all go on to Discord or Snapchat or wherever it is that the talk of tick, wherever it is that they like to hang out. But nothing beats that in-person contact. So when with these kids, they have get-togethers. I'm really fortunate. There's a handful within the parent sphere of these kids that have a similar mindset to us. Mm. So there are a number of families that we end up hosting these parties, as the kids call them. They're just the kids hanging out, essentially. But they all come together. So they, they're together, they, they shoot the shit, they do what they need to do to create that social fabric, to create that social cohesion, to have that trust within each other, to create that mateship, which is so vital, to come up against challenges and experience risk as they navigate their teenage years. You're not going to do that bed rotting on your yeah. iPhone, are you? Well, it's amazing that they, they, um, they, I remember reading about a study where kids talk with less intonation in their voice. And I guess that's part of the whole mumble rap thing and is that sort of monotone that we, we're not used to having actual in-person conversations. I've been guilty of giving baby boomers some crap, I think, at one point when I was forcibly asked why I wasn't wearing a mask. I pointed at the indignant baby boomer woman who was asking me and hissed, when I was young, we had better old people. <laughs> but, you know, in the Confucian uh, framework, old people were to be venerated because then it, it reduced people's fear of getting old and dying because as they got older, they got more venerated and also gave them the 
responsibility to ensure that they became wise. And so I think it's very, very dangerous. And I, you know, won't jump on board just that strain of leftist thought, which is, oh, I can't wait for you people to die because, you know, we've brainwashed your kids. I think that's incredibly um mm. Well, when you, you know, going back to our grandparents' generation, you know, your grandparents, my grandparents, these were resourceful people. These were people that were used to living and making do without. They were warriors. They faced life and death through the wars. Then you have the baby boomers, of which your parents are and my parents are. They don't have that. I mean, they were raised under that, but they also, too, now they've become the fearful generation Mm. in covid totally exposed that for what it was. It's no surprise, though, that generation that was the first to worship youth would be terrified of death. Yeah, true. Yeah, And, and, you know, I mean, we have, that's why it's so good to have relationships between grandparents and uh, grandchildren. It it does provide something of a stability because we do fishtail down the generations overcorrection after overcorrection. Like a lot of baby boomers, my parents were workaholics and I was a latchkey child and I cooked dinner when I got home from school with my brother and sister. Mm. Interesting listening to John Banks on Leighton Smith podcast a couple of weeks back, and he was really, you know, saying he just didn't feel valued. And I, I know a lot of, you know, a lot of those older people now are very capable, and, and there is a move just to, oh, it's old-fashioned, or, yeah, we don't need those attitudes anymore. And that, that's what Maoism did. It replaced veneration of the older relatives with veneration of the party and indeed encouraged young people to report older people who weren't thinking right to the uh, relevant authorities. There's part of this whole, you know, when the masks went on, the masks came off. You know, before all this, we could pretend, and it was easy to pretend with all the the virtue signalling that was going on, that people were actually becoming more moral. You know, everyone could pretend that they'd have Anne Frank in their attic but, you know, now we know for sure that the vast majority of people would be far more likely to be kicking in a door and even more likely to be calling the Gestapo to report a family that wasn't doing what the state demanded. Yeah, absolutely. Now, where do you want to hear to next? There's a bit of conjecture about what's going to happen with um, a harder line policy on crime, and, and that's been, I think, was probably the ultimate failure that did labour and that idea, oh, we'll just empty the prisons and, you know, the people are just there for injustice. As Theodore Dalrymple said, it's a common misconception on the left that if there were more justice in the world, there'd be fewer people in prison. And not only that, the ones that remain do not do right by them. You know, we, we talked about that last week, didn't we? we did. Just the appalling lack of rehabilitative services, services in prison. And, and so, yeah, Jared Gilbert wrote that saying the Ardern government truly drove the reform agenda and left, and the left shifted the needle away from lock-em-up approaches. The public seemed to accept the argument that prisons were not a great solution to crime, but the Labour government didn't make it clear what the replacement was. Without a clear alternative, the reform agenda was never going to last. And I read the whole article thinking he's going to tell us what the clear alternative was, but he, he never no. quite got around to that. And it's interesting, it's just come out that El Salvador's president, Bukele, has jailed 64,000 gang members and crimes dropped, murder rate has dropped to zero, which uh, rather illustrates that Theodore Dalrymple quote, doesn't it? And provided there is an accompanying urgent focus on literacy and numeracy, 
I think, uh, yeah, some people do need to be in jail and they mm. need to be getting uh, drug and alcohol treatment and they need to be getting anger management treatment. I would love to see, particularly if they're in their first sentences, say, for argument's sake, more than three years. Uh, so there's a sentence that's a multiple of years, not multiple of months. That Not only that, that they have an assessment done in terms of their cognitive ability, educationally, and where those deficits are, that schools, high schools, are set up in prisons. These uh, men and women who, because you'll probably find a direct link between their educational deficiencies and the offending that, I mean, we've got Takura. It's a great correspondence school, so it's the former correspondence school of New Zealand. And I would be setting up a Takura, and I'm, I'm sure they probably do that, but have those fallen by the wayside. I'd be having units set up and getting these kids getting their assessment standards and not filling them with all this woke rubbish either. Yeah. No, not. You know what I'd be doing? I'd be having a uh, a lot of New Zealand solid waste stream being deposited into the prisons and emerging absolutely sorted and pristine and ready to be meaningfully recycled rather than just sent to landfill. I would have work gangs cleaning up the forestry slash, chipping it, turning it in, into compost. Ooh. Yeah, or taking it into compost or putting it into the paper industry. Doing something useful, Mm. doing something productive. And the other thing is you really need to have it as as something that people buy into. So you say, well, you've got the opportunity to do this. If you put your hand up for it, you've got to be committed. And if you don't, carry on. And I think the idea of uh, non-gang prisons is is well overdue as well. Mm. As I said, if you're going to crack down on gangs, the most important thing to crack down on is anyone who intimidates someone who leaves a gang. And I have heard some remarks to that effect from Christopher Luxon, which were heartening. But then Mark Mitchell got himself into uh, a bit of strife, actually. That was the other thing that cropped up in the papers, was around his comments and thoughts in terms of banning gang patches. And then, therefore, the argument was, is, oh, well, what happens with those that are wearing their insignia on their cheeks and their foreheads and on their bodies? What are you going to do with those? And he said, I think, had a throwaway line of, oh, they can cover it up with foundation. Now, mm. this is where I diverge completely from the national policy around gangs. And in fact, I think the seven-point policy you and I covered when they put it out several months back, and I pretty much disagreed with most of it. I don't disagree with the fact that there needs to be a more hard line taken with them as organised criminal enterprises. But censoring things like their gang patches, for me, is a very, very slippery slope. Yeah. A very slippery slope. Especially when you've got a reality check radio uh, shirt on and you know that of the two gangs, uh, the government's far more concerned about you. Exactly. The other exactly. thing in addition to, you know, to really cracking down hard, cracking down hard uh, on anyone who intimidates someone for leaving a gang is I think just have to uh, make it an urgent priority to eliminate prospecting. It's mm. like you go into your clubhouse, do all the woofing you want, do all the yozer and, you know, all of that stuff, but you're not going to corrupt kids. You're not going to get kids to bring their underage girlfriends into your gang pad, slip them some pee, and then have at them, and then intimidate them into being quiet. And, you know, we got all upset about, quite rightly, the Roastbusters outrage. That outrage happens in every city in New Zealand in gang pads every week. 
Mm. And we don't talk about it because it, it, it doesn't affect people who are outside those communities, but it's uh, it, it urgently needs to be taken seriously. Yeah, indeed, indeed. The other thing I saw, which was Emerson's cartoon, which is, is very much like the one where David Seymour was being chased by blowflies, wearing tinfoil hats, marked conspiracy theory. So essentializing anyone who goes against the grain as being a blowfly. In this week's cartoon, we're represented as pigeons being fed mm. by... Winston Peters. An elderly-looking Winston Peters. That's disgusting. Yeah, I saw that too. I showed it to Mr. Marie and I was just like, really? Yeah. yeah really? We're it, pigeons now, are we? Yeah. yeah. I think New Zealand's media is about where the Soviet Union was in 1989 when it surprised everyone by collapsing. I think they're... I mean, you know, we've got MediaWorks trading insolvent at the moment, what owing something like it's $64 million in debt or something like that. I think I think they're likely to collapse. And I've said to the overladies, we should put in for some New Zealand on air funding. We should be seeing if we can fill that time slot left vacant by the project, you know, if even if it's just half an hour. I mean, we mm. or even on TV one, you know, we pay for for that, we should get some representation on it. As I said, we don't need conspiracy theories. We just deal in data. Yeah, yeah. From we deal in the in the government. constrained facts. Yeah. Mm. yeah. The other let's, let's work was, on that, Marie. Where we should. And speaking of constrained facts, I watched Jack Tame interview Lord Jonathan Sumption. If you don't know Lord Jonathan Sumption, he is. He's, just, he's many things, but he's a former Supreme Court judge in the United Kingdom. He's yeah, a Lord. scholar, historian, and he really sort of shook things up in the United Kingdom because he came out very vocally against the COVID measures, particularly around lockdowns in the United Kingdom, and was highly, highly critical of Boris Johnson and the other little twerp. Hancock, Matt Hancock, around the COVID measures. And he's gone on and then followed that up with the importance of the, an open and free press and freedom, freedom of speech. So he's out here at the moment as a guest of the Free Speech Union and Q&A, Jack Tame interviewed him on Saturday morning. Just had a face like a bulldog chewing a wasp, didn't he? Oh, I flicked it to you. I said, have you seen this? Now, firstly... Face like a drop pie. I think I said to you, I said... Spot the moment when Jack looks like he swallowed, swallowed a bumblebee. Yeah. <laughs> was... Based like a trampled mango. And full credit to Jack Tame is that he gave Lord Sumption the due respect that a man of his calibre deserved. He was well prepared. He had good questions. Wasn't especially happy about the answers he received. Mm. But he didn't interrupt him. He let him speak. So from a viewing perspective, it was a really interesting interview to watch. And he so clearly and calmly and eloquently stated his position in terms of the cruelty of lockdown. And as he said, the control of the population by the use of fear. Yeah. No, it was a it was a great, and he's got some mana, old Lord Sumption. He's oh, he he was a very dignified man, wasn't he? And uh, I think that's someone we all need to take a, a leaf from the book of. You know, I think we probably are closer, as I said, to to breaking through than we think, and we've just got to hold the line, push down the urge to be retributive or mm. uh, angry or say crazy things, even though I mean. 
I must say the the government's absolute failure to protect the safety of its citizens has led me to question other things. I mean, are they keeping their eye on the effect of the PTFEs in cookware or, you know, have they kept their eye on the possible effects of the 5G network that popped up like mushrooms during COVID or take your pick. I've seen them lie when they knew they were lying and they knew I knew they were lying. So it's natural that there's going to be conjecture, but at this point there's enough actual data that we can focus on that and perhaps put aside some of the stuff that we have to have to yeah. guess at a bit more. Absolutely. Now I'm going to play. This is the final question in that interview which I think was just so profound. And it sort of goes to speak to what we've just been talking about in regards to what it is that we're fighting for, what it is that we need to protect. You are a man of many talents and pursuits, as well as your legal work. You're a celebrated historian. Speaking in 2023, is the role and influence of liberal democracies in the world waning or growing in influence, do you think? I very much fear that it is waning. And I think that's going to be the pattern for quite a number of years to come. Uh, this is There are a number of factors, but the main one is a growing intolerance of, of dissent, a growing intolerance of opinions that the speaker or actor doesn't share. Uh, I think that the, the social media uh, have played a large part in this by uh, accentuating dissent by associating people with those who already agree with their point of view and by producing instant outrage uh, of a kind that once took a much longer period of time to arise. And, and I think that these are wholly negative factors. Uh, I don't see that they're going to go away very quickly. Uh, so I rather fear that we are in for a period of growing uh, authoritarianism uh, and growing what we call bullying by one sector of our fellow citizens against another. I think that's a really sinister development, but that is what we are looking at at the moment. Are there things that our, our leaders, our governments and our society should be doing to reduce the impact of social media on those factors? I don't think you can reduce the impact of social media without engaging in precisely the same kind of censorship, which I deplore uh, when it comes from other directions. What we do need to do is to just get a bit more savvy uh, about how social media works and a bit more sceptical about the appearance of unanimous abuse, uh, which it tends to generate. A lot to think about. It is just, I look, I'm going to half a bit of hopium. I'm kind of hoping that we, it won't be as long as, as he fears, but it is, to me, that is a very important message to actually remind us that even though we sort of can get a few runs on the board, that this is a long game that we're in and we can't celebrate those few runs. We've got to actually keep going and we've got to keep preserving and protecting these values, these th this vision, the vision that man is inherently who he is, that what we need to do is we need to look at the evidence, we need to work on our structures, we need to work on the community, we need to make the compromises that we have. As you say, take the heat out of a situation, not be so reactive and actually look at what is at stake here in terms of society. And I know for me, that is making sure that I raise really well-rounded, respectful young men yep. to carry that on. I don't know yeah. that. And, and improve ourselves. As I said, you know, my current project is going around talking to my neighbours, 
getting the details, asking some of those questions. What do we, what do, we do if the power goes out? What do we do if some uh, water coming from the sea rushing down our cul-de-sac? Are we good to go? Have we all got fire? Have we got a uh, community where if someone's really feeling down, they can talk to people? It's, it's that bringing order to chaos. And that's that's what I'm, I, I think about when I talk about putting recycling into one side of prisons. And I like those symmetrical things. You know, if you've made disorder within society, you can atone for it for making by making order. I think one of the big things that we could all start working on is food production because we're going to have some uh, excess labour to soak up soon and we're going to have a shortage of food if we look at the trajectory and the more in the, in the direction of equity and kindness. It always mm. leads to starvation. So we might as well get some spuds and corn and start using um, some land, whether it's to generate feed for animals. Start reducing waste and get getting the government out from between us. Mm, absolutely, because they have inserted themselves absolutely everywhere. Like a cancer. Mm-hmm. I do actually have a couple of little good news stories. One is we talked about uh, several weeks ago when we were talking about in terms of childlessness and you brought up Jamie Lupton, who was the fiancé of Nick Mowbray, who's the Zuru Toys franchise. Mm. Uh, Kiwi toy entrepreneur and his fiancé who announced last week they were expecting a miracle baby. Mm. So that is very um, very good news for them. And on that news, they have now bought a home because they had been spending a lot of time away from New Zealand. So they're now looking at spending more time here because she had lost a, a child. So that's very nice news for her. Um, she lost, she lost a, I mean, she's she's re, yeah, really struggled. I mean, you know, we both know what, what that's like, but uh, there's something about having kids that, that really solves that that pain and somehow makes you forget it. And so, yeah, they can look forward to that. And if, if they're like me, maybe, um, you know, they'll, they'll suddenly find they go from one child to three, uh, really quickly and they're sort of wondering what they ever worried about. So I hope that's the case for them. I I hope so too. And the last one, uh, and I can't even remember which paper I chopped it out, was but mum wins case to kick out big baby adult sons. A 75-year-old Italian woman had the right to boot out her big baby adult sons, whom she accused of sponging off her for too long. A court has ruled. The mother has tried for years to evict her sons, aged 40 and 42, saying they have jobs and should be able to stand on their own two feet. She took the case to court in the city of Pavia in northern Italy and the judge has now ruled that she has every right to evict her sons. Uh, the judge has given the brothers until December 18 to leave the parental home. Oh, they'll probably get married and then she can make the wife's life a misery. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Yeah, you know, like a mama. mama. <laughs> an Italian girl worked for me she said, oh, yeah, no, I don't want to go to Italy. You know, I, uh, you know, we're having dinner. You know, my brother said, oh, I want a glass of water. I have to effing get up and get for him. Uh, it's, it's a nice uh, way to live, though. I remember when I was in Greece seeing a family at the beach and they were sort of having a glass of wine and they were all together as an extended family. That's a natural way for humans to live, and that's probably another yeah, something another that we, thing need, we to need to get back to. Reclaim and restore, absolutely. If you've got any comments or feedback for Marty and I, and actually I should check, uh, we do have a little bit of feedback. Woohoo! Uh, woohoo! This is in regards to uh, our clip on the media needing a new teat to suck along, which I think was a week or two ago. Uh, From Robin, a weaning is definitely overdue. The bias and revolting disrespect journalism against the now incoming government from the majority of the mainstream media has been hideous. Against the odds and the people of New Zealand, 
prove that they're not stupid and they still voted for change. We now have hope. Many of us switched off from the dreadful bias and the purposeful blindness of the media and sought our own truths from independent media sources like RCR. Thank you for your goodness and your courage. Thank you, Robin. And from Nick, it won't change. The new government, if there is one, will I have my doubts that they'll be the same as the old one. National will be the, about the same as Labour. We just need to nail the taxpayer more and blame Labour for the extra costs. We know how these globalist puppets work and Luxon will suck up to them even more in the name of growth, prosperity and peace. But what they really want us is to let's go, Brandon. But you know what? I think that's where we just have to keep trying to hold those people to account. Yep, and meet, meeting them in person. And, and I mean, I'm more cynical even than that. I always worry that what we're seeing is we get one team in to basically wreck things, run up a whole lot of debt, and now we've got the next team in to uh, maybe socialise the losses or, or ensure that the, the privatisation of profits. And that's going to come by opening the tap up to investment companies like BlackRock, who have got a big fund ready now to suck up these distressed assets. Mm. I mean, there's even some speculation that all the riots where the most full, mostly peaceful protests set cities on fire were a land grab like that. Another discussion for another day. So if you've got feedback for Marty or I, 2057 is the text number. Inbox at realitycheck.radio, of course, is the email. I will do it all again next week and we'll have results next week. So we'll be able to get a clearer lay of the land politically here in this country. Hope you have a good rest of week and uh, thank you very much again, my friend. Yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for the work you do and have a great week, everyone. Would you like to be a part of Reviving Honest Media? At RCR, we're on a mission to do just that. We report on critical, censored stories and hold those in positions of power to account. As Paul Brennan says, it's a good mission. Now there's an easy way to support RCR and at the same time receive some amazing benefits. Our Foundation Membership Club is here. As a member, you'll enjoy a host of exclusive benefits, including a daily bite-sized news digest, a backstage pass to RCR and discounted merchandise. Find out all you need to know about our foundation membership now at www.realitycheck.radio. Thank you for joining me for another great morning of culture, politics and good old-fashioned common sense. More of that to come here on Reality Check Radio with the best of Peter Williams afternoons. And don't forget to let us know what you think. Text us to 2057 or email inbox at realitycheck.radio. Time to leave with a song, yet another reworking of a 2011 song by Australian band Phoebe Kildare and the Short Straws. Here's French producer The Avenir with Fade Out Lines, and I'll see you all next week here on Reality Check Radio. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky on RCR, RCR. Reality Check Radio. Radio. Radio.